Okay, it says I'm live now, and I want to uh, welcome everybody, and Merry Christmas to everybody. This is um, yet another in a series of our Alone Together for Christmas live streams. This is a custom I started a few years ago when I was in California, and my family was in Arkansas, so I didn't have anybody to be with for Christmas, and I thought, let's turn that into a plus, because there's a lot of other people in the same situation, and so why don't we all get together? Uh, for Christmas here on the internet, and we can have an alone together hangout for Christmas. So the way these work, uh, everybody's welcome. You don't have to be alone, but if you are alone, you're most welcome. It's especially for you, but it's also for everybody. So glad everybody can join us. Uh, Even if you're not able to join us live, I'll be posting this on my YouTube channel afterwards, and it'll uh, probably be going out in the Mysterious World feed. So You'll have a chance to view it or listen to it later. And uh, typically what happens in these is I take questions. And so if you have questions of any in about basically anything you'd like to ask, you know, get them ready. Um, I would ask now how you get them to me is you can put them in the chat alongside the program and here on YouTube. And I would ask to make it easy for me to figure out which are the questions and which are just comments that people are making. If you could put a Q and a colon in front of your question, that'll tell me that it's a question for me. So happy to uh, to do that, and we'll get started in just a moment. want to mention, though, that I want to say a special thanks to Ed and Sonia at Deliver Contacts. They're one of our sponsors on Mysterious World. And uh, last year, they wanted to they said they wanted to sponsor the Christmas live stream. And this year they contacted us and said they wanted to do that again. So a very special thanks to Ed and Sonia at Deliver Contacts. They're our sponsors for the live stream today. And they're doing that out of the good of their own hearts. I would do the live stream whether it had a sponsor or not. They saw the value in it. They wanted to participate. And so very special thanks to Ed and Sonia at Deliver Contacts. And uh, you can see their sponsorship segments. Uh, in any week of Mysterious World, just watch an episode and you'll see uh, the uh, their sponsorship segments and learn about the services that they can provide for people by delivering contacts to them in their own homes. Thank you, Ed and Sonia. Now, let's see. Um, let's take a look at the chat and see what we have here. See a lot of folks wishing other people Merry Christmas. Oh, by the way, I don't know how long we're going today. This is always an impromptu thing. Um, I'm, I'll, we'll go for at least two hours. We may go for longer than that. We'll see. And here's a question. This is from uh, Maria. Maria. Um, she says, why does Rome come with documents like uh, fiducia? Uh, fid, fid, I haven't reflected, I haven't yet memorized the exact form of the first word, but um, fiducia supplicants, which is uh, the recent document dealing with the issue of blessings and can they be given to people in irregular situations, including uh, individuals that are in a same-sex relationship. And she says, no matter what the document actually says, they could very easily uh, put everything in clear form. It looks like confusion. And yeah, um, so um, the document is one, I mean, I've read the whole thing. It's like 
five, 5,000 words long. And essentially what it does is it, um, it brings out something that's been implicit in the church's theology of blessings. There have, there's long been what is now referred to as a ritual or, or liturgical blessing. These are ones that the, um, that the church has a formal ritual for. And there's actually a book, it's called the Book of Blessings. You can see it right there on the shelf behind me, where you find a lot of these blessings. There are also blessings that are part of the sacraments, um, like at the end of Mass, when the priest blesses the people. Um, but then there are also informal blessings that are more spontaneous and don't necessarily have a, a ritual written out for them, like in the Book of Blessings. And this document clarifies that. And it makes the point correctly that people don't have to be morally perfect to ask for a blessing. Um, in fact, you can act, ask for a blessing to help you live the way you should. You could be struggling with sin and say, you know, uh, I, I, I want more strength from from God to help me with this sin and they can to live the way God wants me to. And then they can bless you. And when you actually read the document, I mean, it's 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 technically orthodox, but it's it can also be misused uh, like Father James Martin did um, by uh, he. He the ne like the next day, there's a picture of him in the New York Times blessing a same sex couple in a way that it didn't look like they were they were asking. At least the impression was not conveyed that they were asking for help in living chastely despite same sex attraction. It looked like he was blessing them and endorsing their homosexual union. And OK, that if you actually read Fiducia Supplicans, it makes it clear that it's not changing church teaching on marriage or things like that. But, yeah, I, I thought that the way it was, um, I thought that there's a lot of potential for abuse there and a lot of potential for confusion. And that is unfortunate. Uh, let's see. D.R. Hayden, or maybe that's Dr. Hayden, says, could Jimmy Aiken could also tag lines with you with your YouTube name. Yes, and that's true. If you want to ask me a question, you could also at Jimmy Aiken and um, or uh, however you tag lines on YouTube. And that'll create a pop up uh, for me to um, to a uh, kind of highlighted version of my name so I can see the question easier, too. So that's true. Also, you can do that as well. PX says, what is in your St. Michael pipe blend? Okay, so here he's referring to um, a particular blend of tobacco that I smoke. Um, it's a custom blend. It's based on actually a, a tobacco blend that's made in Germany that has a lot of notes that I like. Um, it, Tobacco blends are kind of like wine blends. You know, they have different notes, different flavors, different aromas, different elements that go into them based on the type of tobacco and the way the tobacco is flavored and seasoned and so forth. And there, there's a kind that um, that is made in Germany that has a lot of notes I like. I tend to like sweeter tobaccos that have notes in them like cherry and uh, blueberry and, you know, sweet smelling things like that. Um, and, uh, and, and, but that tobacco blend has an unfortunate thing. It's called devil's holiday. And I'm not a huge fan of the devil. 
but I do do like that tobacco. I would get it in uh, California when I lived there. Now that I'm back in Arkansas, someone asked about that, by the way. Yes, I am. This is my home. I'm back in my hometown of Fayetteville, Arkansas. Uh, but the state of Arkansas has some kind of tax dispute with the company that makes Devil's Holiday, so you can't get it here. But there's a tobacconist just down the road for me in Eureka, in uh, not Eureka Springs, but in Siloam Springs, Arkansas, and they will custom blend tobaccos for you. And so I said, can you do something for me like Devil's Holiday, but make it a little sweeter and lighter? And they did. And since they did it for me, I got to name it and not being a fan of the devil, I said, let's call it St. Michael's Holiday after St. Michael the Archangel. And it uh, so they make that for me. I don't have the exact formula they're currently using. We changed the formula around a, a, a little uh, as we experimented with it. Um, but they've also now uh, included it in their regular rotation of what they offer to their customers uh, in general. So now other people here in Northwest Arkansas get to enjoy St. Michael's holiday. Uh, let's see. Daniel Tucker says, do you have plans to teach any more classes at the Ryan Education Center? Okay, so um, Daniel is referring to a course. Oh, uh, the one whom Jesus loves was the one who asked Jimmy, are you in Arkansas now? Yes, I am. My brother and sister and their families live here in the same town. But I decided even though I um, I do have people to be with now on Christmas, I'm going to keep this tradition going anyway. Uh, I think it's a valuable thing for people. And so I expect to do Alone Together for Christmas for the indefinite future here on YouTube. Daniel Tucker, though, asked, do I have plans to teach any more classes at the Ryan Education Center? So what he's referring to is a class that I taught this last semester. Um, it was basically October and November uh, for the Ryan Education Center on and it was a class uh, on introduction to parapsychology. The Ryan Education Center is the educational arm of the Ryan Research Center, which is an organization that was founded by J.B. Ryan. Uh, when he retired from Duke University. For people who may not know, J.B. Ryan was the most famous parapsychologist of the 20th century. Um, he started work in like the 1930s. He retired in the 1960s. And one of the things that he did was um, really focus on laboratory experiments involving parapsychology. Uh, prior to his time, parapsychology involved what what was largely investigations of spontaneous phenomena. You know, people would have a premonition of what was going to happen in the future, or people would report a ghost appearing in their house, or people would report objects moving around their house, a poltergeist. And, um, and so when parapsychology or psychical research, as it was then called, really got formalized in the 1880s, it was largely a field-based um, endeavor. They were investigating these spontaneous cases that happened to people, although they would also investigate psychic practitioners. Um, the British Society for Psychical Research, for example, um, did lots of, and these had high class scientists in them. I mean, you know, people who won Nobel Prizes and things like that. Um, they would investigate, for example, psychic practitioners, including mediums, you know, people who speak with the dead. And they found that a lot of the mediums were just frauds, although they did find a few that didn't seem to be frauds. 
But when uh, J.B. Ryan came along in the 1930s, he, he, he worked at and was the leader of uh, a parapsychology laboratory at Duke University in North Carolina. And they would do experiments, you know, in controlled conditions. You can't control things in a field experience, but in a laboratory experience, you can. And so they did a lot of scientific work. They pioneered a lot of techniques. And then when he retired in the 1960s, um, he started what's now the Rhine, um, the uh, Rhine Research Center, which has subsequently created a Rhine Education Center to better educate the public about parapsychology and hopefully um, train some new parapsychologists for a new generation. Well, uh, I've been taking classes at the uh, at the Rhine Education Center for a couple of years now. They offer a number of certificates. I already have one, which is um, Investigating the Paranormal, a Scientific Perspective. That's the name of the certificate. They have several others. I'm actually close to completing all of them. But last year, they asked, uh, so Jimmy, you know, you seem to have a really good grasp of this material. You seem to have a, a, a really good way of um, of of you know, talking and educating people the way you present on Mysterious World and so forth. Would you be interested in teaching our intro to para, intro to parapsychology class this fall? And I said, sure. So, um, so I did. And, uh, and Daniel Tucker, who asked the question was one of the students and he passed. Yay. He got a really good grade, him and his dad, both. And so they're going to be getting certificates for that class that are signed by the director of the Ryan Education Center, John Cruth, and also by me, the instructor for the class. Not sure exactly when those are going to be going out, but but they they got passing grades. They're entitled to them. In terms of do I have plans to teach any more classes at the Rhine? Well, um, both the um, the 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 president of Rhine's board and John Cruz, the the director, had talked to me about that actually before I taught the intro class. Um, they, they both indicated to me that this is like, um, kind of a trial run to see how I like it, to see how they like what I do. But the hope and expectation was that I would be teaching for them again in the future. And so, um, so I liked it and they got, I I did enjoy the experience. I'd be willing to teach for them again. We also had feedback from the students, you know, course of teacher evaluations. And I'm told I got lots of good feedback on the teacher evaluations. And what I can announce is, yes, I will be teaching for the Rhine in the future. Um, I was invited um, in the last week or so by John Cruz to both to do a couple of things. One of them is um, teach intro to parapsychology in the future. So I'm going to be teaching intro again in the spring semester, which I think is like April and May or May and June, something like, I think it's May and June. Um, And then John also asked me about a couple of other courses to teach this year. Um, In August, they have a set of four week courses. Most, their courses are either four or eight weeks long. And for they, so John asked me, would I be interested in teaching a Christianity and parapsychology course in August? So I'm going to be doing that. I'm going to be talking about, um, the history of Christian thought on parapsychological subjects. So if you're interested in what have Christian thinkers historically thought about the parapsychological, psychic powers, 
um, you know, um, ghosts, poltergeists, field experiences, the evil eye, all of that stuff. Um, you can take the August course. And then a course that I had uh, also wanted to do um, in part so I can complete the research on it and educate myself um, in the fall, I'm going to be doing an eight week course on world religions and parapsychology, where the plan is this all still needs to be finalized, but the plan is to go through the world's major religious movements, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, native religions, indigenous religions, and and look at the different categories of parapsychology and what these different religious perspectives have to say about different parapsychological phenomena and ideas. So I, I'm very excited for these two new courses, and it looks like I'm going to be teaching for Ryan in the spring semester, the summer semester, and the fall semester in the coming year. At least that's the plan. So hope to uh, hope to see folks uh, who would be interested in those subjects take the courses. They're they're not very expensive. Ryan deliberately keeps them affordable. And um, and I think they're I, I think the courses at Ryan are very interesting and a lot of fun. Let's see. Uh, Ron Bartlett says, which mass did you go to today or last night? Well, um, I like to get my obligations out of the way early. So I tend to go, you know, what canon law allows is to satisfy a mass obligation either on the day of the obligation, either on the day or, or on the evening before. I almost always do the evening before. So um, I went to Saturday night vigil mass for the fourth Sunday of Advent. And then I went last night um, uh, at it was like a four o'clock one that was primarily for families with children uh, for the Christmas mass. So I got my way, my obligations out of the way early. And this morning I've been able to relax, get a shower, go over to my sister's place for a little bit. And now I'm back here with you. It just scrolled up a bit. So I'm going to scroll back a little bit. Oh, Madison Lim says, Merry Christmas from your goddaughter. Thank you so much. And please wish her a Merry Christmas for me, Madison. Um, I, by the way, got the thing that y'all sent uh, and I have it sitting on my on my kitchen table. So thank you so much. Uh, let's see. Going back. Oh, man, there's been a lot of scrolling. I may not, I'm definitely not going to be able to keep up with all the questions, but I'll do the best I can. Um, okay, here's a part of the chat I've seen before. Winter North says, uh, any mysteries that you've looked into that have really given you the creeps or that was uncomfortable to research? Yeah, um, not so much in terms of the creeps. I, I guess the the closest to that would be I'm not a big fan of demons and so researching you know cases of demonic possession and stuff is a little creepy um, but it's something that I think needs to be done I've interacted with it a little bit on mysterious world I'm going to be interacting with it more uh, because I think that there needs to be more education and contextualization 
about uh, demonic possession and surrounding phenomena like exorcism and exorcists. Um, and so I've been doing a bunch of research on that. And that's not entirely comfortable for me, but, you know, I'm willing to do it. And I say the St. Michael prayer and move on and do it. Um, are there others that are uncomfortable to research? There can be. Um, in uh, in cases of violent crime, um, some of the research can be uncomfortable and or things that even if it's not violent crime, there are things that are similar that are uncomfortable. Like one of the scripts I just wrote was about a series of events that occurred in the 1860s in France in a region called Gévaudan. And there was a wild animal of a mysterious nature that was attacking people in Gévaudan. And all right, accents on the first syllable. So Gévaudan. And um, and it's a mystery. It's a legitimate mystery involving a cryptid and in this, or hidden animal. In this case, a cryptid who killed people and he killed a lot of people. And so doing the research for that, I had to read a lot of bloody accounts of exactly what happened to people. And. I'm not going to include all that in the Mysterious World episode because it's a family show. Um, so it's going to be very clinical, very bare boned. We're not going to be going into gory detail. It's just a beast killed something like 100 people. And we're not going to go into detail about how that happened. But um, doing the research on reading about exactly what happened to some of these people was something I still was exposed to. And so the research was a little uncomfortable for that reason. Uh, let's see. Have I heard of death rewind stories? For example, person wakes up, goes through a whole day normally, then dies in an accident, then wakes up in bed again and relives the whole day, but can now avoid death and predict other stuff he remembers. Is this even an actually reported thing in paranormal literature or just a legend? And if the former is it on the list, what do you make of it? This is from Absurd Scandal. Well, um, so this would if I, I'm not aware of any actual accounts of this happening, if it did happen, it would be essentially a a um, a precognitive dream and precognitive dreams, you know, where you dream about what's going to happen are very commonly reported. In fact, when uh, Louisa Rhine, the wife of J.B. Rhine, did uh, studies of spontaneous um, parapsychological experiences, she discovered that 60% of the time when precognition happened, it was in the form of a realistic dream where it's like just you're in your dream, you're watching a videotape of what's going to happen the next day or at some point. And I've those are very commonly reported. I've had that. I've had that myself. I, I have had a dream. I had it in junior high where I just dreamed a videotape of what was going to happen the next day in my art class. And it was something I could not have predicted. Fortunately, I told someone who was also in the art class about it ahead of time. And then when the dream came true, his mouth literally just fell open. Um, so I had a witness. Well, it's certainly possible that uh, one could dream about an event where you, one dies and then wake up and avoid dying. You know, that actually uh, that 
things like that happen. People do dream sometimes about disasters and they um, also um, are able to avoid some of the disasters. Uh, that's what's known as an, in, as an intervention paradox, where it, you see something happening in the future and then you're able to avoid it like you. And and there have been studies done on this as well. Um, in fact, there was a, a, a question about like, do people if if a train, let's say back in the day when people took trains a lot, if a train is going to crash, um, do people seem to sense that precognitively? And what they found was, yeah, they did studies of trains that crashed and the ones that crashed had anomalously high numbers of no shows. You know, people who had bought tickets and then just changed their minds at the last minute and didn't come. And so it looked like there was some kind of precognitive activity going on where people were preventing uh, their own deaths or injury from uh, something like a train crash. Now, I'm not familiar with a specific case like the one Absurd Scandal asks about where someone dreams about their death and then wakes up and avoids it. I'm sure cases like that exist, though, uh, based I, I know that intervention cases exist. I know that precognitive dreams exist. I know that dream precognitive dreams of disasters exist. And so I'm sure there have been cases like that. I just don't have one off the top of my head. Let's see. Um, Randy Snorton asks, could you discuss the Manichees? and how their beliefs differ from our beliefs of God and Satan. Um, yes, hang on just a second. Let me take a drink. I still, this is the first caffeine I've had all day. So, um, so the Manichees are a kind of syncretistic group that was popular in the first few Christian centuries, they combined elements of different belief systems, including Christianity and Judaism. Both Christ and John the Baptist are notable figures in, in their beliefs, as are others. Um, and they believed that the world that we live in, the world of physical matter, is evil. And it was created by, by a, basically by a bad guy. Whereas... The good God did not create the world and and Jesus Christ was his son um, or some kind of manifestation of him or something like that, who came down into the world to redeem us from the material world. And this uh, dualistic, it's called dualistic because it posits two fundamental realities, the bad evil world and the good spiritual world. Um, this. Uh, viewpoint was um, one that was influential, for example, with St. Augustine. Before St. Augustine was a Christian, he spent time as a Manichae. And then when he became a Christian, he did a good bit of writing critiquing Manichae ideas. Um, there are still some Manichaeans around, but they are not nearly as popular these days as they were. But basically, they had you know, kind of a belief in two fundamental powers, uh, a, a good spiritual power identified with God and a bad 
uh, spiritual power identified with the maker of the world. It doesn't now contrasting that to our belief in God and Satan. Well, there's only one fundamental power. God. He made everything else. And the devil, even though he's bad, he's not a rival power equal to God. The devil is finite and is going to lose. He's just a creature that misused its free will. And God made lots of creatures with free will, including us. But the devil did not make the world. The devil is not on the same level as God. And the devil is only temporarily being allowed to do stuff. And the material world is not bad. It's a good thing. God made it. Uh, you know, as in Genesis 1, you know, every, every, at the end of every day, God pronounces what he's done good. And when he's finished, he pronounces it very good. So the material world's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. And the devil did not make it. Rose says, ha, quite the pipe collection there. Well, you can see some of it. I mean, I've got some here that you can see there's more that you can't see and this is but this is only part of it um ben aruda says what should we make of the story of mother mary's home being brought to loretto italy by four angels okay this and i may i've mentioned this on mysterious world but i um i i i i may do more with it at some point Basically, it's a true story, but it doesn't mean what you think. Uh, there, there was a house in the Holy Land that was credited as belonging to, uh, to Mary. Now, that may or may not be true, but that's what the house was credited as being. And it was taken to Loretto, Italy by the Angeli. The Angeli family, a family named Angel. And that got that historical fact got distorted into angels brought it to Italy, meaning spiritual creatures that don't natively have bodies brought it to Italy. Well, okay, yeah, that's not the case, but it was apparently brought to Italy by a family named Angel. So angels did bring it. They were just human angels, not the not the immaterial kind. Wesley Corway says, uh, you mentioned once there were apparitions or time slip cases showing the future or contact with the future. How would this be explained, especially if you include if if some include not yet existent people? Reminds me of a story I read. I once read several years ago of two teen boys where one visited the other and saw his friend enter his house but on knocking saw an elderly version of his friend open the door, tell him he's been living there for decades alone and how the kid reminds him of a childhood friend he knew. The guy closes the door and the teen ver and the teen version opened it and everyone was baffled, even parents. Well, uh, so time slips are a reported phenomenon. Uh, a time slip is where you appear to experience elements uh, or or an entire environment of another time. Um, the most famous time slip is known as the Versailles time slip. It occurred at the Palace of Versailles in France in the early 20th century, where a couple of uh, British academic ladies uh, were were there, and they began to see, as they were touring Versailles, the grounds of Versailles, 
they began to see strangely dressed people in period costume and they felt really weird and they seemed to see um a woman who looked like Marie Antoinette and then all of a sudden kind of the fog lifted and they were back in the normal 20th century. And upon investigation, they found that the things they saw did not correspond to what was presently at Versailles, but did correspond to things in the historical records. And so they, so this was regarded as a time slip. It looked like two people had slipped back in time somehow. The question is, what would explain time slips? Um, could it be, um, could it be retrocognition? Retrocognition is the opposite of precognition. Precognition, so cognition means knowing, and you precognize something if you know it ahead of time. So precognition is knowing the future. Retrocognition would be cognizing or knowing something from the past. And so if you if you um, if you retrocognize something, you know, the past the way someone who's precognitive knows the future. So it could be that they had a retrocognitive experience and didn't actually travel in time. They just perceived it that way. Um, it also could be that somehow people maybe really could spontaneously travel in time. If so, we have no scientific explanation for that. Um, retrocognition, retrocausation is possible. And, and under Einstein's um, theory of relativity, time travel to the past looks like it should be possible. Um, in fact, scientists actually study time travel to the past, although they don't tend to call it that in their grant applications. They call it the study of closed time-like curves, because if you say I'm researching time travel, you won't get your grant money. Um, that's something Stephen Hawking pointed out, by the way, in one of his books. Uh, so time slips are a real, pheno real phenomenon that's reported, but um, what explains it, if it's anything mysterious at all, I mean, it also could be hallucination, delusion, you know, there are natural hoax, there are natural causes for these things too. Um, what would explain it is, is still very much a mystery, but something like the story you told Wesley if it happened, yeah, that would be a time slip, but I couldn't explain it without investigating the case and seeing, making a list of all the different possible explanations, including the natural ones, like this is just a teenage hoax, and um, and then investigating to see which hypotheses could be eliminated. Alfonso Galvan says, you have mentioned that you are not a Thomist. What are your main disagreements with St. Thomas Aquinas? Uh, thank you for everything you do and regards from Mexico. Um, thank you very much, Alfonso. So um, in terms of, so what a Thomist is depends on how you're using the term. I actually have a lot of respect for St. Thomas um, and on an, on kind of the highest level, you could describe my methodology as, as, as Thomistic, because what Thomas did was have an open attitude towards uh, information from any source. So he, he, he would incorporate things like Aristotle's philosophy, you know, insights from Aristotle's philosophy. He wouldn't accept it uncritically. 
you know, where it conflicted with the Christian faith, he would correct it. But he he would he would take ideas from Aristotle. He could take ideas from Islamic philosophers. He could take ideas from other uh, sources. Science basically was part of philosophy in his day. So he would take scientific ideas from different philosophers. Um, he he would integrate stuff regardless of where it comes from, and he would process it and and see uh, what seemed best the best way to him to view the evidence and and what conclusions to draw from it from it so actually i do that um i'm i'm very open to knowledge it doesn't have to be from a catholic it doesn't have to be from a christian it anywhere it, all truth is god's truth as they say and as has sometimes been attributed to, to aquinas as having said um so so in in that sense i you could consider me a Thomist, but that would be misleading because normally when people mean uh, refer to a Thomist, they don't just mean someone who has a method like Thomas. They mean someone who comes to a lot of the same conclusions as Thomas. And that's where my disagreements would be. Um, I think that partly... Um, I think some of saying I, th I think some of this some of, I think we have to be very careful with um, trying to do philosophical reasoning because it's very easy to let human intuitions mislead us. There's a kind of armchair philosophy that led to a kind of armchair science that produced erroneous conclusions. Um, like if you are just thinking about it natively and you don't. Have, have never actually studied it, you would be inclined to think, well, if I have a, a light object and a heavy object and I drop them at the same time, the heavy object should hit the ground first, you know, because it, it makes a bigger impact on the ground. That makes it feel like maybe it's falling faster, but it's actually not true. Um, assuming the two objects have the same aerodynamic qualities, so one of them is not going to be slowed down by greater air resistance, like a feather with all that surface area. Assuming they assuming they have comparable aerodynamic qualities and you drop them at the same time, they're going to hit the ground at the same time. So our kind of native intuition about how they would fall turns out to be wrong. Um, and that's an illustration of how our intuitions, when conf confined to an armchair environment, um, are are not as reliable as we can achieve if we're able to do actual tests. And that's, I think, been abundantly demonstrated by uh, the rise of modern science, which has has shown some very surprising things, but they're testable. And, and we can provide good evidence of a scientific nature uh, for various conclusions that seem counterintuitive to us, you know, like quantum mechanics is full of those. Well, um, that hasn't stopped some people who are committed Thomists from trying to mount arguments against things like evolution on philosophical grounds, even though we've got, frankly, quite good evidence that some form of evolution happened. Um, other Thomists have um, have gone out of their way to to argue in favor of evolution. So, but my point is that. I think we need that. I think we need to do testing when it's possible to um, 
to cross-check what our philosophical reasonings would say. So I think we need to have a healthy integration of science and philosophy. And that means that if you're going to access the work of St. Thomas Aquinas, which is all pre-scientific, you need to not just accept what Aquinas says because he says it. You need to do cross-checking. Uh, when he's in there interacting with a scientific perspective, you need to do scientific cross-checking. But frankly, when even when that's not the case, when he's interacting with something that's not scientifically investigatable, you still need to cross-examine St. Thomas. And w- in some areas, like his understanding of metaphysics, which is the study of what's ultimately real, I just think he's way confident about things that I don't think we can be so confident about. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm always open to what Aquinas has to say, but I'm frequently not convinced by what Aquinas has to say, especially on metaphysical matters. For example, one of the, uh, one of the things Aquinas is famous for saying is that every angel is its own individual species. And he he holds that for metaphysical reasons. Basically, he thinks that if um, that in order to have more than one member of a species, you need to have some kind of stuff that separates them from each other. So the thing that separates me from, say, my sister, we're both human beings, is the stuff. I'm made out of different stuff. And my sister is made out of different stuff. Now, of course, we also have things like our genetic codes are different and so forth. But basically, you can have multiple humans in the same species because they're, each human is made out of different stuff. And Aquinas wants to say, but, aha, spirits aren't like that. Spirits aren't made out of stuff. Therefore, each angel has to be its own species. Well, so my problems with that are twofold. One, if that's the case, why do we have terms like collective, terms like angel used in divine revelation to describe them? If if we, you know, if if you have a collective term for something, that implies they're all members of the same overall class, you know, and um and scripture does use collective terms for different groups of angels. And to my mind, that would suggest that okay, you got a species for you know, this type of angel or cherubim or seraphim, whatever type of angel you want, it's, it looks like a species with members. So, um, so that leads us to the philosophical argument mate that Aquinas makes that um, without stuff, you, you don't have members in a species. Well, that could be questioned, but even supposing he's right about that, how do you know there's not spiritual stuff? Maybe there is. Maybe we have we have physical matter. Maybe there's a kind of spiritual matter, too. It's not matter as we have it, but it could be a kind of spiritual stuff that could separate um, different uh, different angels as members of the same species. We also notice we got different human souls. You know, my soul is not the same as my sister's soul, but that doesn't mean my sister and I are spiritually two separate species. Um, So I don't, uh, I don't really think this line of argument from Aquinas is convincing. My inclination would be to say, we've got classes of 
like angels with different members of that class, just like we have a class of humans with different members of that class. So that would be an example of where I might disagree with St. Thomas. Uh, Let's see. What's your favorite Christmas meal, Jimmy? I don't have one. I'm, I do try to eat something special on Christmas and it may be a kind of traditional American Christmas food, but I'm not wedded to that. When I lived in San Diego, I frequently for Christmas would actually eat Himalayan food, which is kind of like, it's basically kind of like Indian food. Um, There was a local Himalayan place that served lamb vindaloo, which is a kind of lamb stew that I really liked. And they would also have naan, which is a kind of flatbread. And they would have, um, you know, other, other, you know, kind of Himalayan and Indian and Nepalese uh, foods. And I would, I would order that for Christmas uh, for a few Christmases. So don't really have a, a favorite Christmas meal. It just kind of varies. Rebecca Lynn says, could you comment on Annette's letter from hell? I could if I knew what it was, but I'm afraid here you have me at a disadvantage. Um, I'm not familiar with Annette's letter from hell. But what I can say is coming up in January, in fact, the first week in January, we're going to first Friday in January, we're going to have a an episode of Mysterious World on disturbing near death experiences. A lot of times when you hear of near death experiences, they're all very joyous and happy and peaceful and they sound really great. And that's left some Christians saying, well, if these things are real, why don't we ever hear about hell? Turns out we do. And this has just been understudied. Um, the original near-death researchers, for a lo- or I should say not the original, but for a long time, near-death researchers didn't go looking for these because they didn't want to find them. And furthermore, the people who've had them usually don't want to talk about them. If for a long time, it's been embarrassing enough, uh, you know, or dicey enough to admit you had a near-death experience. Originally, people would think you're crazy. Um, well, what if you say, I had a near-death experience and, and, and I've seen hell and I went there? Okay, that's like putting a target on your back that says, I'm a failure and a sinner. Um, so, and, and on top, people have been very disturbed by these things. So they've been dramatically understudied. Um, it turns out that at least about one in five near death experiences involves some kind of disturbing elements. Um, now that, and that may be underestimated, but now the experiences have started to be studied. And so we're going to be talking about them in the first Mysterious World episode of 2024. And they don't all, you know, just because just an NDE or near-death experience has disturbing elements doesn't mean that, um, doesn't mean that the person experienced hell. I mean, for example, they might have been experiencing purgatory or it could have been something else. But, um, but they they really do exist. And so we'll be talking about them. And so even though I don't know about Annette's letter from hell, we will be talking about people and their accounts of what it was like when they at least thought they were seeing hell in the afterlife. 
Inyama Ezine says, how many pipes do you have, Mr. Aiken? I don't know. I haven't counted. Um, I have the ones you see here. I have a number of others here on the desk beside me. That box is full of pipes and other um, uh, pipe accoutrements. And um, I also have another box in another room that's like that. But I haven't. Oh, and I have some on my wall here, which you can't see. Um, but uh, so I don't know. I've, I've, I've been pipe smoking since I was in my teens and I'm, I'm 58 now. So I've accumulated quite a number over the years. Don't use them all, but still got them kind of a collection. Uh, let's see. Gonchar says, asking genuinely, you helped grow my faith. Thank you. Uh, made me a stronger believer. However, could you address claims of resurrection being a cumulative myth and the, and possibly the result of the Mandela effect? Okay, sure. Hang on. When I do public performances, I have to keep hydrating. And starting square dance calling, I realized I needed about a can of soda every hour. And we're almost at the hour mark, so I should finish this can. Okay. So um, the resurrection being a cumulative myth. Well, the problem for that is... um, we have this, we have, we don't have adequate time for myth to develop. Myths take substantial periods of time for, to come into existence because people's memories of what really happened uh, need to get, need, need time to get fuzzy. They need to have not really a good memory of it, but we have people who were either Jesus's associates or their immediate associates clearly proclaiming the resurrection of Christ within a very short window of when it actually happened. Our best evidence indicates that the crucifixion and resurrection was in AD 33. And we have, for example, St. Paul writing 1 Corinthians um, in AD 53 or 54. So that's basically 20 years after the events. Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, St. Paul has a creedal statement about the people who met Jesus after his resurrection. And he mentions he appeared to Peter, he then to the 12, he appeared to James, he appeared to more than 500 brethren. And then Paul appends himself to the end of that creedal statement, saying, and lastly, and lastly he also appeared to me as one untimely born. And... Um, And so we have this creedal statement from 20 years, and it involves people who were eyewitnesses, like Peter and James and the apostles. And it is something, because Paul's quoting a creedal statement, something that's been passed down as an oral tradition, that means that this tradition existed before 1 Corinthians. So um, if you, it, it clearly comes from the period between AD 33 and AD 53. So this, this creedal statement might have been around, if you just want to split the difference, that would put it in AD 43, if not earlier, it may have been even earlier than that. And so we have this very early creed from, you know, within 10 years or less of the, uh, of the crucifixion that's not enough time for a myth to develop. Not when you have the people who were involved, like St. Peter, 
um, and the other apostles, uh, they're testifying to it, you know, saying, yeah, we saw him. We know that Jesus's immediate followers were testifying to his resurrection in the years immediately afterwards. So there's just not time for something like a cumulative myth theory to develop around this. And consequently, there there is really no application of the Mandela effect here. Uh, the Mandela effect occurs, at least seems to occur, if it doesn't involve alternate timelines. It's It involves people's memories getting fuzzy and misremembering things. But... <laughs> You have the you have you have the eyewitnesses of Jesus's ministry saying this is what happened within a decade of, uh, you know, or we can document them saying it within a decade of the events. And they claim to have been saying it all the way along. You know, you read the beginning of Acts, which was written about eighty sixty, and um, and is heavily drawing on Paul and Peter as sources. That's why the first half of Acts focuses almost exclusively on Peter, and the second half of Acts fo- focuses almost exclusively on Paul. It's because Peter and Paul were two of Luke's major sources. Um, and there were a couple of others as well, like uh, Philip the Evangelist, who's in chapter 8. Chapter 8 focuses on him. But it was mostly, almost, the first 12 chapters, it's basically Peter is the source the last 14 chapters or 16 chapters is basically Paul and others in the Pauline circle as a source. And, and you've, and so according to Peter, the source behind Acts chapter two, he was there on the day of Pentecost preaching Christ's preaching Christ's resurrection at Pentecost AD 33. And the church started growing from there. So there's really no time for fuzzy memories and Mandela effects and and cumulative myths. Also, if there had been, uh, if, if, if another reason that this can't just be explained that way is because the tomb would have been full. Jesus' body still would have been there. And the authorities who were antagonistic towards the Christian community could have just gone and produced the body. And and ended the whole thing right there. So the evidence just doesn't fit theories like that. I know that skeptics propose such theories sometimes. Some skeptics, others don't bother. Um, but uh, you can claim anything, but that's just not what the evidence fits. Let's see. Jeremy Luce says, "I know you have talked about praying for people in the past, <clears throat> but could you pray to a person in heaven?" you believe will be a saint when they die in the future, but just haven't passed on. Well, sure you can. Um, you, you know, you don't know for sure that they're going to end up as a saint. Um, but you, you could, you could leave a message for them for when they are a saint. Uh, now we don't ever go outside of time ourselves but God is outside of time and you don't even need him to be outside of time for this to work. You just need him to be all knowing. Um, so you could, you could uh, basically use uh, this is putting it indelicately, but you could use God like an, like an answering machine or a deliver on this date email service. So, you know, when person X ends up in heaven, they get a message that, oh, yeah, back in 2023, uh, Jeremy Luce wanted their prayers. And they'll, they'll get the message when they're in heaven, and they can pray for you then. 
So sure, that could happen. I need to figure out how to better articulate that. But that, but fundamentally, the answer is yes, that could happen. Uh, Jawarli says about Big Sur. So that's a place in California where there was a, uh, a UFO incident that we talked about recently on Mysterious World. Um, why rule out disinformation as an explanation so easily? Mansman and Jacobs needn't be intelligence officers to be part of a disinfo campaign, and George could be controlled opposition to make the story sound more credible. One reason uh, for the disinfo could be to simply sow confusion among ufologists or make Soviets think that there's an alien, there's an alien threat bigger than either it or the U.S. or just plain social engineering to make society think that aliens exist, whether or not they do for various reasons. Also noticed you didn't give crypto terrestrials or others attention as explanations. And then there's supposed to be a fourth part of his message, but I'm not seeing the fourth part. Maybe it's this. Why is that? Lastly, the way you phrased the bottom line sounds like you're more ready to believe in alien visits now than before, where you said you don't think there is enough proof. Is that true? Well, um, so I I don't dismiss disinformation as a possibility in the Big Sur UFO case, um, but I just don't see evidence of it. Uh, the ev- I mean, I have to I have to say how the evidence appears. It's possible to speculate that the appearance generated by the evidence is wrong. But unless I have evidence supporting an alternative hypothesis, I, I, it, it, it's paranoid to explain away the data with an alternative theory that you don't have evidence for. I mean, that's the essence of paranoia. And so I don't want to be paranoid. So I have to say, well, this looks like a this looks like a credible situation. It looks like in 1964, something interfered that we didn't have an explanation for and that wouldn't seem to match our current technological abilities, uh, seemed to interfere with the, with the, with the U.S. Uh, nuclear weapons missile system test, which is the essence of what happened to Big Sur. And it looks like these two uh, officers uh, who confirmed each other's stories independently um, it looks like, you know, it looks like they're telling the truth. Uh, nobody has presented any inf- any evidence that they are disinformation agents. And so I have to, I don't have any evidence that they're disinformation agents. I don't dismiss the idea that they are, but I don't have any proof of it. So I'm not going to accuse someone of being a disinformation agent without evidence. Um, in terms of alien do, do i believe aliens are visiting well okay he also mentioned uh, crypto terrestrials those are alleged hidden races here on earth and i will talk about crypto terrestrials in the future i think it's an interesting theory but i don't think it's very well supported um i often mention crypto terrestrials briefly as an alternative to extraterrestrials um another alternative is interdimensionals another alternative is time travelers um, and so I often mention those as exotic alternatives to extraterrestrials, but I, I, there's no real way at this point to adjudicate between those different options. If, if we have something that's genuinely exotic, we don't know whether it's 
classified human tech, extraterrestrial tech, time traveler tech, interdimensional tech, or crypto terrestrial tech. There's really no way to sort those out at this point. But um, I I do know that there are things like the uh, the UAP anomalies that um, that the military has been investigating that we genuinely don't have an explanation for, and that seem to seem to exceed current uh, currently known flight characteristics. So there's something exotic. I don't know whether they're alien or crypto terrestrial or time travel or interdimensional or or just classified human tech, but there's something, and so I don't have a firm position on our aliens or any of the others visiting us or not. I don't know. Maybe they are. Maybe they're not. I haven't seen anything that would convince me one way or another uh, with regard to any of those explanations. But I do know that there are things that seem to be technologically superior to what known human technology is and that we don't have an explanation for. So I got to live with the mystery for now, as I think we all do if we're interested in this subject. Let's see. Uh, Anthony Marchetta asks, what's my take on fiducian supplicants? Already covered that at the top of the show. Um, Gorads Zupan says, why is there so little faith in the world today? Well, I don't know that there is. I mean, um, there is. There's a lot more faith in a lot of the world than people commonly realize um there and i think one reason for that is that there is a kind of skeptical elite that influences academia <clears throat> and the news media and things like that and that makes it seem like there's less faith than there actually is in the world but when you look at polling of ordinary people across the world, they've actually got a lot of faith-based beliefs. Now, maybe it's not as strong as it was 200 years ago, although that might actually surprise you because there is less faith in some previous periods than a lot of people realize. Um, But there's actually is a lot of faith out there. So I don't think it's accurate to say there's so little faith. Um, there, uh, I think another reason that can create that impression is, um, hindsight bias. Uh, there's a kind of hindsight bias that humans are subject to where we remember the past as being better than it was. And, um, you know, you, this is kind of a, a trope, uh, that's sometimes used where you, you know, you'll see old people talking about how it was this way in my day. And um, and often people view the past as being better than it was, as if it were a kind of golden age. But actually, you look back in the past and, yeah, there um, there were differences, but uh, but there was a lot of stuff going on that wasn't particularly faith filled. Um, in fact, church attendance in the late in around the year 2000, or at least, you know, a few decades around the year 2000 was higher than it was at the founding in the United States. Um, a lot of people in the seven, late 1700s didn't go to church and a lot more people later did. So these things go in cycles. Um, and I I wouldn't view it at, in terms of there being so little 
faith in the world today. I would view it in terms of we have a problem with the uh, with the media and academia that have become dominated by faithless worldviews, worldviews that are hostile to faith. But uh, and that does have a negative impact on society. But I don't think that I don't think that I don't think faith is on the ropes in the way the media and academia would often like to portray. Let's see. Stacy Malone says, in your recent nativity episode, you said that there are multiple ways for Jesus to be descended from David. I forgot this, the term. Can you explain further? I thought it was father to son only. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'll address that. Okay. So generally when I talk about Jesus being descended from David multiple ways, I mean, through different lines. Um, if you have, and I actually have um, a, a section about this in my book, A Daily Defense, where I, I give examples of this. But basically, you can have, um, if you look at Queen Elizabeth II, she's descended from William the Conqueror, but she's descended from William the Conqueror bunches of different ways through different lines. And... Um, and and that's because William the Conqueror had multiple children and multiple descendants and and people like Elizabeth II are descended from several different of those. Now, if you think about it, like I'm one person, I have two parents, four. We're, we're talking. We're going to stick with biology here, not not legal. I'll bring that into it in a minute. But biologically, every human has two parents. They have two parents. They have two parents and so on. So you, so you get this powers of two progression. One, two, four, eight, 16, 32, 64, and so on. And 128 would be the next one. Didn't want to leave you without closure on that. Then 256, then 512, then 1024, and then 2048, and so on. 4096 would be the next. Um, in any event, you have this doubling pattern, but it can't go on forever. It can't go on doubling forever because um, then it would turn out that, you know, 100 generations back, you've got way more ancestors than there would have been humans who would have been alive, you know. And so what happens is at some point, the number of ancestors start shrinking again because you're descending from more than one person you're descending from one person in more than one way because people tend to marry in with this is called endogamy. They tend to marry within their own community there. Sometimes they marry outside their community, which is exogamy. But most of the time they marry within, you know, their social circles and their town and things like that. And so they're or their tribe. And so they're endogamous. And that means that it, your ancestors don't go on doubling forever. They come back. And that means you have a smaller number of ancestors in the past and you're descended from them by multiple means. Well, um, so like Queen Elizabeth is descended from uh, William the Conqueror, who lived a thousand years ago, um, both by uh, his son, Henry, and by his daughter, Adela. And she's actually descended from Adela in like eight different ways. So eight different lines right there. Well, okay, so David, who lived a thousand years before Christ, had the same thing happen. You know, he had children and he had multiple sons and multiple daughters. 
and Jesus happens to be descended from more than one of them. Um, Matthew preserves Jesus's genealogy where he's descended from, um, from uh, where Joseph, Jesus, Jesus's legal father, I told you I'd get to the legal stuff, um, is descended from David through David's son, Solomon. Luke preserves a genealogy where Joseph, and it is Joseph's genealogy in Luke, not Mary's, um, where Joseph is descended from David through David's son, Nathan. So all this shows is Jesus is descended from David through two different lines. Big deal. So what? Um, Queen Elizabeth II is descended from William the Conqueror through two different lines of William the Conqueror's children. And the same thing is true here. Now, uh, you mentioned, um, Stacy, that you thought it was male to male only. Well, ancient Jewish genealogies do uh, go male to male, um, but this is male to male. We have we have David to Solomon and on down a line of males to Joseph. We have David to Nathan and then on down a line of males to Joseph through a different route. So it is a, a, a male uh, following male genealogy. It also incorporates legal adoption, probably more than once, because they had in Israel, if a man died childless, it was the duty of his uh, brother, uh, the, in other words, the brother-in-law of the man's wife, the levir, to use the Latin word for brother-in-law. Um, it was the levir's duty to marry the widow and have a son that would legally be adopted posthumously by the uh, by the deceased man. So it would be reckoned as his child, even though its biological father was the dead man's brother. And this was what was known as the Leverite marriage. Well, in the course of a thousand years, you probably had a few gentlemen who died childless and the Leverite marriage continued the line. And we actually have some evidence that Leverite marriages occurred in Jesus's line at least a couple times. So then we get down to uh, to Joseph. And of course, he's not Jesus's biological father, but he is Jesus's legal father. And I was um, I was recently in a debate just this last week. I was on a debate on capturing Christianity with some. Uh, uh, was, it was a two on two debate. I dated I debated with a gentleman named Caleb against a couple of uh, gentlemen named uh, John Loftus and um, Darren. I, 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 it starts with an S, but I'll get it wrong if I try. I may get it wrong if I try to say it. Anyway, Darren and John were our opponents, and one of the things that um, that John said, and I'd seen, he's also written about this, is he he mocked the idea that Jesus's genealogies could be real on the grounds that no adopted son ever has a legal claim to the throne. That never happens. And unfortunately, for time reasons, I wasn't able to get into this in the actual debate, but. Wow, does John need to read some more history? Because adopted sons succeed to the throne all the stinking time. In fact, that was one of the principal reasons for adoption in up in 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 um in the upper class was because if you didn't have a male heir to carry on your family line and you're getting ready to die, and you don't want your family to collapse, you want it to go on, you want this institution you're a part of to go on, 
you adopted somebody as an, you adopted another adult to become your legal son and carry on your line. This was one of the principal motivators for adoption in Greco-Roman society in the upper class. They weren't adopting kids because they, they were wanting to give these kids a home. They were adopting kids because they wanted the kids to continue their line and they would adopt adults, you know, because why adopt a little kid that's been all these years? If you can just adopt an adult and he'll carry on your line. And this happened in, as I said, the Roman upper class. And so it happened in the imperial family repeatedly. Um, You know, just look at the first emperor, Augustus. He was not the biological son of Julius Caesar. He was adopted by Julius Caesar as an adult to be his successor. And then how about the second emperor, Tiberius? He wasn't Augustus's biological son. He was adopted as an adult by Augustus and made his successor. How about Nero? He was not Claudius's biological son. That was Britannicus. But Claudius adopted Nero and made him his successor. So this happens all the stinking time multiple times in just the line of first century Roman emperors. So the idea that adopted sons never inherited the throne is just wrong. Um, And I mean, that the point of adoption is this is your legal son. Now he legally inherits. And so if you're a king, he legally inherits. He's got a claim on the throne. And so, um, so I hope, Stacy, that that uh, provides a little bit of extra context on all that. If you'd like more information, particularly about the multiple lines, uh, get a copy of my book, A Daily Defense. And one of the days in there deals with exactly that question and gives examples, including more detail about the Queen Elizabeth example I used here. Let's see. Aaron Carter says, I have empathy. I also have a connection with my dead family members. St. Joan of Arc said that her contacts were in her imagination. That's how God contacts us. How do we know what is true contact? Okay, so um, the essence is by testing. Um, Now, you know, some people report experiences that are like realer than real and they just know intuitively and don't feel a need to test. And that may happen. Um, I, I can't rule out that kind of thing. I can't judge that kind of experience because it's subjective. And if someone is subjectively convinced this is definitely real, you know, then I have to accept that they They are having a powerful experience of some kind that's sufficient to convince them. If you want to convince somebody else, though, like me, you may need some more evidence. And um, and if if you're not sure if you're really being contacted, then um, then I would say test it. And the, the way to test it or one of the best ways to test it is in the old days, they'd call it asking for a sign. And you can do that. Um, you could ask them to affect something in the, in the environment, um, in a, in a way that's unlikely to happen by itself. It doesn't, it, it's not really a good test. If you say, 
if this is the really the spirit of my deceased grandfather contacting me, please make sure the sun comes up tomorrow. That doesn't really tell you your grandfather's in contact with you. Um, but some people do ask for a sign. Um, they'll say, you know, let this really unlikely specific thing happen. And if your grandfather's spirit has the ability to bring that about, it might happen. It's also possible your grandfather might not have that, the ability to bring that about. Um, another, and this is kind of a sign, but it's an informational sign. Another kind is getting vertical information. Vertical information means information that the living participants do not know, but that nevertheless turns out to be true. So, for example, um, this is this. There, there have been various reports of ghosts from the past that returned on unfinished business, and they would say things like, "Just want to let you know." my my final will and testament is sewn into the the uh interior lining of my favorite coat so go get my coat rip out the stitching and you'll find my will and then and nobody knew that nobody knew that this guy had a last will and testament and then they go they get his coat they rip the stitching out they open it up there's the will okay that's an example of vertical knowledge it's knowledge that none of the living people knew but the spirit of the apparent grandfather provided this information and it and upon investigation it turned out to be true so if i were in in what might be contact with say a deceased relative i would i would i would ask for vertical information i would say tell me something that i don't know but that i can verify and 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 if you're able to do that, especially if you're able to do it a few times or a good percentage of the time you're able to do it, then I would say, yeah, it sounds like you're in real contact with this person. <clears throat> At least I don't have any reason to challenge that you're in contact with this person. We'll do religious stuff next. Hang on just a second. Religious religious see stuff says are super Mandela effects or similar phenomena on the list. While most examples aren't impressive, stories exist of people having, allegedly, having big aspects of their life change overnight, such as a woman claiming her fiancé for a few years just stopped existing one day, and nobody except her remembers, plus her workplace changed its location, etc. Have you heard of cases like that? If so, are they on the list? Well, um, the... The Mandela effect is on the list of future topics for Mysterious World. I have mentioned it briefly, as I said, but I do plan on doing a bigger look. If you have documentation of, of you know, that you could provide, like send me links of impressive stories like that, I'd love to receive the links. You can send them to feedback at mysterious.fm. Um, I love getting resources from people. The, uh, you know, I'd have to look at them and evaluate them. One thing I would suspect in cases like that is hoax. Uh, someone saying I had either hoax or mental illness. Someone saying I had this fiance and one day he just ceased to exist and nobody noticed but me. Okay, that sounds like it's either hoax or mental illness. Um, but it's something that would have to be looked at. 
August TV 123 says, did Kirk sin in Star Trek 3 when he stole the Enterprise? Grave matter or venial? Was the crew as culpable? What about McCoy? Okay, so uh, so in Star Trek 3, they the characters, Mr. Mr. Spock has apparently died. That happened at the end of Star Trek 2. And um, because of the political situation, Kirk is forbidden to go to the uh, to the to the Mutara Nebula where where Spock died um, because there was a device uh, known as the Genesis device used there. And the Genesis device was viewed as a weapon by the Klingons, because what it, what it would do is essentially overwrite and make habitable a planet and ready to receive any new life forms you would put on the planet. So the Klingons immediately thought, what if you use this on a planet that already had life? It would be a, it would be a, a weapon of genocide and you could just go in and replace the planetary population with whatever new organisms you wanted. So it was an, an intense diplomatic situation and, hands off the Mutara Nebula for now was declared. But uh, Dr. McCoy was suffering mental problems where, because of something Spock did. Basically, Spock implanted his soul in McCoy. And this was causing mental confusion on the part of Dr. McCoy. Simultaneously, um, they had uh, reason to go a, a message from Spock, basically. Uh, it, it, that they needed to go back to the Genesis planet in the Matara Nebula and get Spock's body and reunite his body and soul at Mount Salea on Vulcan. And since Kirk is standing by his friend, he goes ahead and violates orders. He steals the Enterprise and goes get Spock's body and Mr. Spock ends up alive again. Okay, so... um in terms of this being sin, taking the property of another against the owner's consent is not always sin. It is presumptively so. It's, that's what theft is, taking the, um, taking the uh, property of another against the reasonable will of the owner. That's the definition of, of theft. Um, you can look that up in the catechism. Well, uh, so Kirk did take the enterprise against the, against the will of the owner, the Federation, but um, was it against the reasonable will of the Federation? Well, that's that's oh, there's a judgment call in situations like this. I mean, on the one hand, you're trying to save your friend's life, and saving life can override a lot of uh, a lot of uh, a lot of negativity, um, a lot of uh, it, it, you know, a lot of the reason in the will of another. If they say, "Oh no, you can't use that." food, for example, but your family is starving and you have no other way to get food. Well, it's not un, it's, it's not reasonable for the other person to deny you if it means your family's going to die. So you can you can take other people's property in order to save life. And so hypothetically, taking the enterprise is now they did destroy the enterprise, but that wasn't part of the plan. Just borrowing the Enterprise or something else to get transport to the Matara Nebula to pick up Spock's body. Okay, that's and they did try another route um, to do that. Doctor McCoy tried to hire somebody uh, to do that, 
basically a less a kind of weird Han Solo type who wouldn't take him. Um, but uh, they had access to the Enterprise. They took the Enterprise. Ultimately, Star Trek, the Federation, uh, Starfleet in the Federation ended up reconciling with Captain Kirk. And, you know, after he saved the Earth in the, in Star Trek IV, the search for whales, um, they they basically they did discipline him. They busted him back to being a captain. But um, that was his be- great. That was his best destiny anyway. He didn't like being an admiral. And uh, Mr. Spock got instated back into Starfleet, too. And I think we're meant to understand on the story level as an audience that you know, this is ultimately a story about friendship and sacrifice for the sake of our friends. And so it would be hard for me to say in the cinematic universe, especially given the ambiguity about whether the Federation's will was reasonable in the circumstances, it'd be hard for me to accuse uh, Captain Kirk of sinning in this situation. Also, It'd be even harder to accuse Dr. McCoy because he was suffering from mental confusion caused by the fact he had a Vulcan soul knocking around in his head in addition to his human soul. Let's see. Uh, AJ Onimechi says, is there any specific well-known near-death experience story from someone that has your interest. Yes, there there is there are several and I plan on talking about them in the future. One is from a this one happened uh, several decades ago, but it and it happened in the northwest United States. There was a migrant worker from Mexico named Maria who who uh, went into cardiac arrest and they took her to the hospital. And she had a near-death experience where she saw her body from above. She saw the doctors and nurses working on her. And then she kind of had a mental tour of the hospital. And one of the things she found was that on a ledge outside one of the patient's room on an upper floor of the hospital, there was a shoe. It was just one shoe. It was it was like, you know, a tennis shoe. It was uh, scuffed and it had like the shoelace wrapped around it. And then they get her heart started and she's back in her body. And she was so. I, I don't know what the word is, maybe distressed by this experience. She really wanted to talk about it very insistently. She starts talking to one of the hospital workers who happens to speak Spanish and she she insists, you need to go find the shoe. You need to go find the shoe. And so the hospital worker decides to humor her and starts looking around the upper floors, going through the patient rooms and bingo, there's the shoe. She retrieved the shoe. It was exactly like Maria said. Um, so this is a case of veridical information, something nobody knew that turned out to be true. Um, it was just one shoe. It was like a tennis shoe. It was the right color. It was scuffed. It had the one shoelace wrapped around it. Everything checked out. And she brought it back and showed it to Marie and said, you're right, you're right. And the nurse actually kept the shoe for years after that, although unfortunately it eventually got lost, um, but not before it had had a chance to be documented. And so this is a very interesting case. I plan on writing about it in the future. Um, and that's one case. There's also another case where um, where a person did not, this one's a little more complicated. It's much more recent, but um, 
it's also extremely well documented where a woman was going in to the hospital for a procedure that required them to stop her heart. And and this happens um, in various uh, in various types of operations. They need to stop your heart and they put you on a on a like a blood flow device and then they restart your heart later. And so she was going in for one of these kinds of operations and she had, and it was specifically, it was a brain operation, as I recall correctly. I've only learned about this one fairly recently, so my memory on the details won't be completely straight. But um, but basically they needed to do, I think it was brain surgery on the woman and they had, um, they had headsets in her because that would pump loud noise into her ears so that they could monitor like what's going on with her responsiveness and the noise and things like that. So there's no way she can hear anything. And she has a near death experience during this operation. And she can hear, for example, the conversation that the doctors are having. And even though she's got this loud noise being pumped into her ears. So she shouldn't be able to hear this conversation at all, much less she shouldn't be mentally active while they're doing this because they've got her heart stopped. And then when they when they bring her heart back online and she wakes up, she's got all this vertical knowledge under circumstances where she should not be able to have it. At least that's my memory of the account, but I need to do more research on that one. Uh, let's see. Uh, Dennis O'Corns or O'Corn, yeah, says if Jesus knew Judas would betray him, how can there be free will? From where does free will come anyway? If God created both our brain and mind and everything else, well, um, so even humans can create processes that are no longer under our control. Um, we, you know, if 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 you're if you're up on a if you're you know, let's say at a really snowy mountaintop and you decide to pitch a stone, you could start an avalanche that goes way beyond your control. So even we can do things that leave our control. Now, um, God, of course, can control anything, but he can also choose not to control it. And so in creating us, God gave us a faculty to make decisions and he chose not to control our choices. So he's he he could override that. He could just make all our choices for us, but he chose not to do that. And so he's he has chosen to refrain from determining the consequences of our choices. And that's why we have free will. But that's not incompatible with knowledge. Uh, you can know what someone else will freely choose to do. You can, and you can know that because you can see them doing it. If I, let's suppose I go into a, um, an ice cream shop with someone who has free will and, and I see them purchase, I don't know, um, chocolate mint ice cream. Now I don't, I didn't know ahead of time they were going to do that, but I see them doing it. And it's a free will choice. I'm not making them choose chocolate mint. No one else is making them choose chocolate mint. They're freely choosing chocolate mint. They've got bunches of other options. Well, okay, I see them do it. So I know their free will choice. Okay, that's how it works for God, except he's outside of time. So he sees all of history at once. He sees it, being in the in the ice cream shop with him 
on December 25th, or let me put it this way. If I'm in the ice cream shop with the, with the person on uh, December 24th, December 25th, and December 26th, and on December 24th, they pick strawberry ice cream, and on December 25th, they pick chocolate mint ice cream, and on December 26th, they pick blueberry ice cream, then I would have to go with them three days, three different days to see what their free will choices are. But God sees them all at once from outside of time. He, from outside of time, he sees them on December 24th, picking the strawberry. He sees them on December 25th, picking the uh, chocolate mint. Not that any ice cream stores are open on Christmas. And he sees them on December 26th, picking the blueberry. So he's not controlling their choices. He's just knowing their choices. He's seeing their choices inside of time. And that's the way it worked for Jesus. God in, 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 in his, and Jesus in his divine nature is outside of time and sees Judas betraying Jesus. Um, now, Jesus, because he has that divine nature, can foresee inside of time, can access the divine nature outside of time to see what someone is doing inside of time. So the divine nature sees Judas betraying Jesus in AD 33. And Jesus, when he starts his ministry back in AD 29, he and picks his disciples, he foreknows what Judas is going to freely choose to do. But just like God doesn't require you to pick the the chocolate mint ice cream, that's your free will decision. He just knows of your choice. In the same way, Jesus did not force Judas to betray him. He just knew what Jesus, what Judas's choice was going to be. So that's at least a basic sketch of how all that works. And I hope that's helpful. Uh, let's see. Thiago Laman says, have you heard about St. Ambrosio's brother vote slash promise to St. Lawrence? Is this practice that old? Um, I'm not entirely sure what you're referring to there. I, I'm I'm aware of some some interesting stuff regarding St. Ambrose, but I'm not sure specifically of of what you're thinking of here. The first other says any paranormal mysteries related to plants you find fascinating. I'd imagine some have claimed even plants have psychic abilities, not just animals, but their lack of consciousness makes me think any such claims would be rarer and less evidenced, if not downright impossible as well. Well, there has been some work done regarding plants and psychic abilities, or at least plants and abilities you wouldn't expect plants to have. Um, there, uh, there have been several researchers who would do things like take lie detectors and hook them up to plants and um, and then put the plants in various situations and seem to get a response on the, on the polygraph machine. Um, I have, am aware of, of these researchers and their work. I have not yet dug into it myself. And um, I, I'm also, of course, aware there's been a great deal of skepticism about this work. And given that I don't have a high opinion of lie detectors anyway, um, 
it's just not scientifically established at all that they are detecting lies and um and they are it is quite possible to fool them so i don't place any stock in lie detectors as being good truth discernment machines but they don't actually have to be good at discerning truth just to monitor reactions i mean you may not be able to interpret uh, the reaction is, oh, this is an indicator of truth or this is an indicator of falsity, but it is a reaction. And so if it turned out that you can hook up a plant to a um, to a lie detector and in a way where you're shielded from the plant, so it can't be air currents, it can't be body heat, it can't be something like that. If I can be, you know, under in a controlled environment, isolated from the plant so i can't be directly naturally influencing it but i can nevertheless think murderous thoughts about that plant and it starts reacting well that would be significant um even though i'm not a fan of lie detectors in general if you can measure a reaction in a when in a controlled way my merely thinking about the plant will cause it to react, okay, that shows something interesting. That either shows the plant is somehow getting information about my murderous intentions, or I'm using PK, psychokinesis, to affect the plant, or to affect the machinery that's hooked up to the plant. So we've, we, we would have something psychic going on here. Either the plant is psychically picking up on something about me, or I am psychically affecting the plant or the equipment. I don't know if that kind of experiment has been done, um, but it would at least, if it, if it were done, and if it had statistically significant results, it would show that, you know, there is evidence for something psychic happening in this circumstance, but more work would have to be done to sort out whose side it is, what mine or the plants. And in fact, that's one of the classic problems in parapsychology is figuring out you you can get evidence for something psychic is happening here, but knowing whose psychic ability it is is really tricky. Um sometimes it's it's the participants sigh, sometimes it's the researchers sigh, sometimes it's somebody else's sigh. And so it Teasing out exactly who's being psychic. You can get evidence for something psychic's happening here, but teasing out who it is that's doing it is much harder. Oh, by the way, we will be having an episode coming up in the not too distant future on um on uh, on pet telepathy. Um there has been quite a bit of study of that, and I have uh researched um that in significant more detail. And and I'm currently writing a script for Mysterious World about pet telepathy, kind of as a palate cleanser after doing The Beast of Gévaudan, um, because that one was, okay, it involved an animal, and that one was nasty. Um, so I thought, as a palate cleanser, let's do something happy with animals, like dogs who know when their owners are coming home, apparently telepathically, and things like that. There will also be... Um, an exp- an account of an experiment that was done with a uh, I, it was an African gray parrot I think uh, named Inkisi, where the owner, uh, you know, she lived in an apartment complex. She had Inkisi with her all the time in her apartment, and she would notice Inkisi would talk about what she and her boyfriend were thinking. 
And so she contacted a researcher named Rupert Sheldrake, who's based in England, and uh, and and they decided to do experiments with Nkisi. So they would leave Nkisi in its natural environment in the apartment, you know, where it normally lived. So because you don't want to upset the animal by moving it somewhere else, because then it might not perform the way it normally does when it's in the apartment. But they took the owner to a different apartment. So there's in sensory isolation from Nkisi. They start showing the owner pictures of things that Nkisi knows the name for. And, um, and Nkisi knew, you know, like, I don't know, over a hundred words and could even, even use simple sentences. Um, I mean, she could string them together into simple grammatical sentences in English. And, um, so what they did was they, they got the owner in one apartment showing her the pictures that Nkisi knows the name for. And they got another video camera back in her apartment monitoring everything Nkisi is, Nkisi is saying while they're showing her the pictures. And, you know, sometimes, no, unfortunately, they don't have a way to tell the parrot, read her mind and tell us what you see. So they're they're just hoping that Inkisi will will do that, that she'll she'll pick up on whatever um, the owner is seeing and choose to say that word out loud. And 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 she did. And they got they got results that were quite statistically significant. They also scored this uh, experiment in a very conservative way. So they they only counted it as a hit if and they used like independent judges to do the judging. Um, they only counted it as, as a hit if Nkisi said the name of the object that they were showing a picture of to the owner. And in one case, they had what really looks like an enormously good hit, but um, they counted it as a miss. In the picture they were showing the owner, there was a car, and Inkisi knew the, the word car, so they're expecting her to say the word car. They're only going to count it as a hit if she says car. But in the picture, the human driver of the car is like sticking his head out as he's driving. and. So what in back in the back in the owner's apartment, what Nkisi actually says is, careful, you stuck your head out. So <laughs> Nkisi didn't say the word car, so it was a miss, but it sure looked like Nkisi knew exactly what the owner was seeing, because when she's seeing a driver doing a dangerous move of sticking his head out of the car while driving, Nkisi says, careful, you stuck your head out. So I think that's really charming and amazing. Uh, let's see. Uh, Jesus Hernandez says, Carl Jung indicated we all have a shadow that must be integrated. How do we square that with the concept of our faith? Well, I'm not an expert in Jungian psychiatry, um, but I can certainly see that there's an element uh, there, there could be a couple of elements there that would truthfully correspond to our faith. Um, it's partly going to depend on what you mean by shadow and partly what you mean by integration. Um, we all have a disordered nature because of original sin that we have to come to terms with. And, um, and that 
means now there are different strategies to how do you come to terms with it. Uh, some people just give in to their darker impulses, and and that's what sin is. Okay, that's not the way to integrate it. Um, other people want to just ignore it and pretend it doesn't exist. And that's also not a good way to deal with it. That's not a good way to integrate it. What is a good way to integrate it is to be honest about it and say, yeah, um, I'm a human. I'm a fallen human. So I sometimes have disordered thoughts and impulses and I'm not going to let them rule my life. I'm not going to pretend they don't exist, but I'm also not going to allow them to drive me to become scrupulous and and paralyzed and things like that. I'm going to uh, achieve a stable balance and a healthy spiritual life where in spite of my sinful desires, I'm going to move forward and seek to do good in the world and love God and love my neighbor. And that kind of, if, if that's what you mean by integrating a shadow, well, that's perfectly true. That's perfectly in harmony with faith. Another way of conceptualizing it would not be about specifically um, sinful uh, inclinations on our part, but, um, but fears and how to integrate fear into a healthy, robust presentation of oneself or healthy, robust system for navigating the world. Another way of understanding a shadow could be in terms of destructive impulses, because we not only have creative impulses, we also have destructive ones. And that's okay, because sometimes we need to be destructive. Sometimes we need to tear stuff down that's not working and build something better in its place. Sometimes we need to go kill food. You know, uh, we got to get protein somehow. And uh, and historically, that's meant hunting. Also, sometimes we're in situations where we have to defend ourselves. If someone is is coming for you or your family, you may need to physically defend them. And that involves calling upon a destructive side of your personality because you need to stop them physically. And um, so I can see several different ways, whether it's in, in understanding a shadow in terms of destructive capabilities, in terms of fear, or in terms of sinful inclinations, we all have a way, we need to find ways of integrating those negative things into our lives in a way that channels them positively and doesn't allow us to be paralyzed or consumed by them. And so I can see there being an element of truth here, but I would have to know more about the details of how Jung is conceptualizing these things uh, to be able to go further in discussing it. Nubby Rose says, are there any questions you are looking forward to getting answered when you are in heaven? Yes, lots of them. None of which come to mind at the moment, but lots of them. Uh, I know one thing that I would really love to do is so I have a favorite lost book that I would love to be rediscovered, and it may be one day rediscovered. Um, it is uh, a book that was written in the very early second century. It's based on first century eyewitness accounts, uh, in part I, on first century eyewitness accounts of the ministry of Jesus and the apostles. It's by, um, uh, it's called An Exposition of the Logia of the Lord. It's a uh, five-volume work, five, meaning five scrolls, 
by a bishop named Papias of Hierapolis. And it appears to be a commentary or something like a commentary on the Gospels. It, it, the fragments that we have of it are fascinating, and I would love to have the whole thing. And it seems that the whole thing survived in some libraries until at least the 1400s. And there are a lot of things that still exist in libraries that some of them have been cataloged but not published yet, so they're still unknown to world scholarship. I would love there to be, uh, or either that or in a trash dump in Egypt, I would love us to find a um, a copy of uh, the exposition of the Logia of the Lord by Papias. Um, it would be super awesome. And so when I get to heaven, I would love to, um, I'd love to be able to read it. Of course, then I'll also presumably be able to to ask the actual eyewitnesses what what actually happened and not have to depend on what Papias wrote. <clears throat> also, um, probably, I'd, I mean, I'd love to know the answer to every mystery from Mysterious World. Was what actually happened here? Was I right on this one? Was I wrong? Um, what actually happened for every mystery on Mysterious World? Jeremy Luce says, should the existence of psychic phenomena reduce one's confidence in the supernatural origin of miracles of saints that could be explained via psychic functioning, by location or levitation, for example? Well, um, so I think there there is an interesting question here, and actually I'm going to be addressing this question in my upcoming um, courses on uh, Christianity and parapsychology in August and uh, world religions and parapsychology in in the fall. Um, because this is a significant question. If psychic functioning is real, uh, to what extent might it be responsible for uh, events that in a religious context have been regarded as miraculous? Well, um, I I think that the answer to that question, I think it's a question that's a legitimate question. It parallels what I mentioned about um, uh, uh, about parapsychology in general. One of the hardest things, even in an experimental situation, is to figure out whose psi is producing the effect. And this is essentially the same issue. You know, if you have some, if you have Joseph of Cupertino levitate, how do you know it's God doing the levitation? or Joseph of Cupertino doing the levitation, or both, you know, or an angel or something. The whose psi is it question, the causation question, is a big one that we that we hit in parapsychology and that we hit in other areas too. Um, I don't think that it's a an either or though. And this is something that I I've talked about in other contexts, and, and we'll be exploring further. Um, so let's look, for example, at the spiritual gifts that Paul discusses in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, and a few other places. He indicates that all of us as Christians have received a gift from the Holy Spirit to serve others. And he names some examples of what some of the gifts are. I'm pretty sure what, that one of my gifts if I have only one, I think it's teaching. Um, I think that 
I, I, I think I have a knack for that. And it's a knack that I, that the Holy Spirit uses for his purposes. Now, I, I don't think that there is no natural component to teaching ability. It's not like I would be completely unsuitable as a teacher if I weren't a Christian. Um, I think I have some natural teaching ability that the Holy Spirit then elevates and uses for his purposes uh, to build up the body of Christ. And so, so I think, as St. Thomas said, grace perfects nature. I have a natural teaching ability that God's grace then perfects and uses in a way to help people spiritually. Okay, so that's how teaching works. Well, um, okay, what about what about other spiritual gifts? I mean, they didn't have in the ancient world this rigid distinction that we do between the natural and the supernatural. They tended to mush things all together. They they didn't have this clear distinction. Uh, a, a miracle was not thought of as oh, that's a supernatural act that violates the ordinary course of nature. They didn't think about it that way. They they thought, oh, wow, that's a wonder. And that's what the word miraculum means in Latin. It means a wonder. You know, it's not, they didn't think of it as that supernatural. They thought of it as that's wonderful. That's something to wonder at. Um, so without this rigid distinction between natural and supernatural, how might other spiritual gifts work? Well, um, how about healing? You know, there are people who claim to heal and and seem to be backed up uh, by by, you know, parapsychological research in in controlled settings seem to be able to heal people through psychic means. Okay, so if psychic healing is a part of human nature and some people have a natural aptitude for psychic healing, then just as some people have a natural aptitude for teaching that God could then elevate and use for his purposes, couldn't God take someone who has an aptitude, a natural aptitude for psychic healing and elevate that healing ability and use it for his purposes? I think they could. Or if someone had a natural psychokinetic ability, a natural ability to you know, be able to move things around with their mind. Could God take, and let's suppose St. Joseph of Cupertino has such a natural psychokinetic ability. Well, God could take that, elevate it, and use it for his purposes by letting St. Joseph of Cupertino fly in the presence of others. And it's not that it's either the human or God doing this. It can be both. It can be there's a natural teaching ability that God then elevates. There could be a natural healing ability that God then elevates. There could be a natural psychokinetic ability that God then elevates. And so I don't think that these are exclusive. It is a question, uh, uh, you know, that we can wonder about how much of it is coming from which source. And as a Christian, in seeing it happening in an explicitly Christian context, I think we can fairly look at it and say, well, God is involved in this in some way. Um, you know, in uh, you know, if you look at the teaching ministry of Jimmy Aiken, 
if you're a Christian, uh, I hope you would conclude that, yeah, God's active in my in the teaching that I do in some way. Uh, how much of it is natural? How much of it is supernatural? I don't know how to pull that apart. But um, but from a Christian perspective, I don't think we need to be concerned or threatened about that. And in the same way, even if there is a natural component to St. Joseph of Cupertino levitating or to someone having a laying on of hands healing ministry that produces results, even if some of that is natural, it doesn't it doesn't strike me that we need to be worried about that. Um, we can still see the hand of God in it as well. And how much was was natural and how much was supernatural? Uh, well, that's something we can maybe find out on the other side. Veronica Maria says, stated in a sermon that guardian angels and angels in general don't have personalities because they lack emotions. Your take on that? Yeah, um, I think that would, well, okay, so there are two issues here. One of them, is that true? And two, would I say it in a sermon even if it was true? I wouldn't say it in a sermon even if it was true. Um, I, I think that's not the place for that kind of thing. And it could alienate and confuse people. Um, uh, also, I don't know that angels don't have emotions. Who said they don't? Um, you know, uh, they're spirits, but we're spirits too that have bodies. And, um, and our feelings aren't all connected with our bodies. I mean, so yeah, we do feel things in our bodies, but, um, you know, we also seem to feel things with our minds. And also, uh, if angels don't feel with their minds, then how are the good angels happy with God? And how are the bad angels going to suffer in at the end of time? It seems to me that biblical data presents us with evidence that angels do have uh, have have emotions of some sort. They may or may not be exactly the way emotions work with us, but it would seem that we have evidence supporting angelic emotions. And I can imagine someone, I don't know, St. Thomas or someone else trying to philosophically prove that they don't. But uh, but I don't think it works because unlike God, who is outside of time and invulnerable and thus can't have negative emotions like being in pain in his divine nature. Um, the uh, angels are inside of time. They're changeable. They're like us. And so I, even if they don't have emotions that are exactly like ours, I think they do have uh, positive something equivalent to positive emotions that like link the good ones to God and something like negative emotions that, um, you know, uh, including the ability to feel unpleasant things like will happen when they're punished. So, um, so I, I, I don't, I, I'm not particularly, and if then by personality, you mean a particular set of emotional dispositions? Well, um, yeah, I, uh, I suspect that they do have personalities and emotions of some kind. Also, there may be other ways to just to um, consider a personality 
besides just emotional dispositions. It could be volitional dispositions, um, like someone may choose to do a particular kind of work. And, you know, so some angels might choose to do some things and not do other things. And on the basis of those choices, you could say they've also defined a sort of personality for them. You can expect this from this angel, that from that angel, but you can't expect them both from both. Um, So I would think that, you know, when our and they also, of course, are going to know different things because angels are not omniscient. So if whether you're talking about personality in terms of different knowledge or intellect, different knowledge or different choices or different feelings, I suspect that we have a basis for personality in angels to begin with. But even if we didn't, even if there was good evidence, they had no personalities. I don't see how preaching that in the course of a homily, it's too speculative, and I don't see it how it's going to benefit the congregation. I could see how it could undermine the congregation's um, confidence in their guardian angel's love for them and care for them. So even if it were true, I might discuss it in a, in like a, a theology lecture, but not an homily. Matthew Vanacore says, uh, I read through your book, Teaching with Authority. I'm still confused about when and how bishops and the Pope exercise their ordinary and extraordinary magisterium. Okay. So the extra, the or, the ordinary magisterium is what bishops and popes do all the time. Extraordinary magisterium occurs in the case, it occurs only in two cases. The first case is when the Pope makes an infallible definition. If the Pope is making an infallible definition by his own authority, that is an extraordinary act of the magisterium. The other is a little, the other circumstance involves an ecumenical council. So this is when the bishops do something extraordinary. There seems to be a dispute or a difference in how some authors apply the term extraordinary in this case. It looks like some authors apply the term extraordinary to the infallible definitions made by an ecumenical council. And that's certainly true. If an ecumenical council infallibly defines something, then it is uh, definitely that's an extraordinary thing because all infallible definitions made by a particular act, like the act of a pope or the act of a council, are extraordinary. They're not what ordinarily happens in the teaching of the magisterium. However, some authors also seem to apply the term extraordinary to everything and ecumenical council does, whether it's infallible or not. So that's the other way that this seems to be conceptualized is that some people will conceptualize it as um, the extraordinary magisterium is an infallible definition performed by an extraordinary act, whether of the Pope or an ecumenical council. And other authors seem to think of an extraordinary act of the magisterium as an infallible definition of a pope or anything an ecumenical council says, whether it's infallible or not. Those are sort of the two models. Personally, I favor the first. 
I think it's more straightforward and e- and there's a better rational basis and it's easier to conceptualize if you stick with the usage that says an ex- an act of the extraordinary magisterium is an infallible teaching proclaimed by an extraordinary act of a pope or a council. Ordinary magisterium, everything else. Hope that helps. Uh, Michelle Pickett says, is it a sin if you stay at a known haunted hotel with the intent to experience and or witness paranormal slash ghost activity? No, why would it be? Um, you know, if you, if you know that, I mean, ghosts, believe it or not, ghost appearances in are known in parapsychology as apparitions because it involves the appearing of a ghost. That's what an apparition is, an appearing. That's where the term comes from. If something appears, it's an apparition. And, uh, and, and that could happen with departed spirits, you know, like saints in heaven um, and, uh, and souls from purgatory. That's the common understanding of what ghosts are. According to some, like Thomas Aquinas, even the ghosts of the damned could appear by God's permission. Um, so uh, there's nothing wrong with showing up where you have good reason to think a spirit might appear. If you know an apparition of the Virgin Mary, let's say it's 1917 and you're in Portugal and the the three shepherd children, uh, Lucia, Jacinta, and Francisco, uh, that you know and have good reason to believe are telling the truth are saying, okay, the Virgin Mary shows up in this tree uh, in the COVID area every 13th of the month um well you can show up and and you know and witness the event and maybe experience something like the miracle of the sun there's nothing wrong with doing that and so well okay what if the virgin mary is appearing in a hotel rather than in a tree out in a field well you could go there um well what if it's not the virgin mary what if it's one of the other saints you know, well, you you could go there. There's nothing wrong with going to the hotel to see a saint appearing. What about a soul in purgatory? Um, you know, if there's a soul in purgatory that appears in a hotel, you could go there. You could see the activity. You could pray for the soul. You could do all that. Um, what if it's damned? Well, if it's damned and God's letting it appear here for some reason, like I don't know, educating the faithful about the pains of hell or something. Well, you could go and get educated about that. So, um, so, you know, just going to a hotel and, and staying there and hoping maybe I'll experience something unusual. And if so, I'll deal with it in a Christian manner. There's, there's no sin in that. So it's just the same as going to an apparition, you know, under other circumstances. Uh, now, if you, if you're going to see a damned apparition, Want to be a little careful if you want to if you're going to go see an apparition of the Virgin Mary. You want to be a little careful because people's imaginations can run away with them about the Virgin Mary. So, in any event, you want to be a little careful in going to such situations and not automatically think everything is a, is supernatural because there's lots of stuff that happens that's actually natural. You know uh, that noise you that thumping you hear in the night maybe you know, a bubble in the water pipes and not a ghost, or it might be 
a possum in the attic or something like that. So we always have to use critical thinking, but there's no sin in going to um, going to the site of an apparition or wanting to, you know, experience something unusual and have that experience for oneself instead of just reading about it. Ah, let's see. Matthew Vanacore says, uh, what kind of document is fiducia or fiducia supplicans? It, it is it a declaration? Yes. Um, it's from it's from binding on the faithful, but where does it fit in the spectrum of authority? Okay, so declarations, as they're commonly understood, are among the more authoritative documents that the congregation for the doc or now the dicastery for the doctrine of the faith is capable of producing. Um, DDF documents are not as authoritative as papal documents, typically, but um, so it's a step down. It's not like as, a, as authoritative as an encyclical, for example. But as far as teaching documents go, they uh, declarations are seem to be regarded as the most authoritative of the ones that the DDF is capable of producing. At the same time, um, this particular document isn't, I mean, it does have teaching elements, but it also has a bunch of pastoral application. And there's a difference between teaching and pastoral application. So even though it's in the, um, it's in the declaration format, and thus we should take seriously the things that it teaches, it's not as authoritative all the way through as if it was teaching church doctrine all the way through. Mark Graff says, uh, Jimmy, you dedicated a book to one of your grandmothers. Care to share? What's the legend of the purple polo? Okay. Um, so, yeah, I dedicated my book, The Bible is a Catholic Book, to my maternal grandmother. And I did that because she gave me my first Bible. She was not a Catholic. Uh, she was a member of the Church of Christ, which is quite common in Texas where she lived. And But she still was a Christian woman, and she cared about my Christian education. In fact, I was being raised basically nominally Protestant, and my parents weren't um, seeing that I had any ongoing religious education. And my grandmother, out of uh, love for me and out of a Christian love, wanted to make sure I had um, exposure to the Christian faith. And she gave me a, a new international, hardback, new international version of the Bible to read. It did not have, you know, notes in uh, like study notes. So it would be an experience of just reading the Bible unfiltered from from any particular religious perspective, uh, you know, because you look at some study Bibles and they're going to like be dispensationalist or some whatever. And she just gave me a basic plain Jane. Here's and she also she used the King James, but she recognized that could be uh, challenging for me to read Jacobian English. And so she gave me the new international version, which is a modern translation that's quite easy to read by comparison to the King James, certainly. And I appreciated that. I still have that Bible. It's in the other room. It's in my main library. Yeah, I have both a main library and an auxiliary library. And then in here, I've got the tertiary library. Um, 
But uh, I, I valued that. And so when I wrote an actual book about the Bible, I wanted to dedicate it to her. In terms of the other subject that Mark asks about the purple polo, I assume he's referring to the fact that I tend to wear, actually, this is not a polo, it's a t-shirt, but I do have purple polos as well. Um, and I tend to wear them because people say they look good on me uh, with my hair and the purple colors seem to complement each other nicely. And so I, I wear them for that reason. And some have asked, do I have an infinite supply? No, I just wash them. And let's see. Okay, so we've been going for over two hours now. I'm going to finish this one real quick. Uh, Aaron Carter says, as an animal person, more than the people, per, more than the people person, thank you for the do animals have souls mysterious world. Happy to do it, Aaron. Um, it's, uh, I want to say it's like episode, actually I can just get the episode number. Um, but it's about animal afterlife. I just need to get the search feature going here. Yeah, it's 203, episode 203, where I, I look at evidence regarding do animals have an afterlife? And I I conclude that the traditional arguments that they don't, which are of a philosophical nature, and by the way, this would be another place where I disagree with St. Thomas. I don't think his arguments on this work. Um, and they're metaphysical in nature. Um, but I, we actually have some uh, experiential evidence that animals, at least some animals, do have an afterlife. And so uh, you can check out episode 203 about that. You can find it here on my YouTube channel by searching Do All Dogs Go to Heaven or Animal Afterlife on my YouTube channel. You can also go to mysterious.fm slash 203 and find it. And by the way, since we've been going on for a couple of hours at this point, I assume that we have some more people who weren't here at the beginning. And so I want to let them know. Let's find here it is. Uh, I want to just let them know uh, that I want to thank Ed and Sonia at Deliver Contacts. Uh, Deliver Contacts is one of our regular sponsors on Mysterious World. You can see their sponsorship segments in every episode. And uh, they, as their name suggests, they deliver contacts to people through the mail. So you can order your contacts that way. Um, and last year, even though I was going to do Alone Together at Christmas, you know, as normal by myself, um, they, they, out of the generosity of their heart, said, we want to sponsor that too. And so they, uh, they donated to the StarQuest Network to uh, be the sponsor for last year's Alone Together for Christmas live stream. And this year they wanted to do so again. So I want to say a special thank you to Ed and Sonia at Deliver Contacts for their generosity, helping uh, sponsor the Alone Together for Christmas live stream so that we can all enjoy it and be together. Let's see. Uh, Computer Blue says, thoughts on the Blade Runner movies and if AI with their level of intelligence and emotions could be saved or be given a soul by God? Well, um, I've seen the first of the Blade Runner movies and I've seen more than one cut of it. And uh, spoiler alert. Five, four, three, two, one. One Decker is a replicant. 
Um, having said that, um, I thought the first of the movies was very stylishly done. Um, the uh, I haven't seen the more recent one, so I can't really comment on that. In terms of do AIs with a replicant level of intelligence and emotions, could they be saved? Well, not if they don't have souls. They can't be saved or damned. Um, but um, could they be given a soul by God? Okay, so I think the evidence, at least as far as we have it, now it really it's going to depend on what a replicant is. In the book, do androids dream of electric sheep, which the movie is based on. I, you know, I've read the book and they are presented as being basically artificial humans. Well, if they're really, and the, it's very hard to distinguish them from a human. The way they do it is they give them something called the Voigt comp test that reveals it, it involves questioning and biometrics and, detecting a very subtle emotional difference that replicants don't have the empathy that that actual humans do but if you're if you have to give someone a psychological test to tell that they're not a human as opposed to a blood test or just an x-ray then um it's looking like they're an artificial human it looks like they're a real life form because if they're not a real life form, you should you you shouldn't have to give them a psych test, um, and so they're not like ordinary robots. I think that replicants and actually the Cylons from Ronald Moore's Battlestar Galactica have crossed the line to okay, this is really just an artificial human. Um, it's not a robot anymore. It's not a device. It's biological. If you have to go to ridiculous lengths to determine that this biological thing is not a human, is not a homo sapiens, then you're dealing with something that, like a dog, is is alive and and therefore could have a soul. So I would say that the Cylons from Ronald Moore's Battlestar Galactica, not the Centurion Cylons necessarily, but certainly the skin jobs, um, they 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 have souls. They also have the concept of God. And if you got the concept of God, I assume you got an immortal soul. Um, and so the the replicants from Blade Runner or do Android stream of electric sheep, they look so realistic that they I mean, they're clearly organic biological life forms. Otherwise, you wouldn't have to do ridiculous testing to show that they're not. Um, I, I think they're artificial people. They probably have, they probably are alive and have souls. Um, but there's a lot of AI, but this is fantasy. This is fiction. In real life, AI runs on computer chips and is silicon and is not alive. And so I don't think AI has souls in the real world. Could God give it a soul? Well, God is omnipotent, and therefore God can do anything that does not involve a logical contradiction. So could so it seems to me God could give AI a soul in that there does not appear to be a logical contradiction in the sentence, 
this AI has a soul supervening over it. Um, there doesn't seem to be any contradiction in terms there to say that an AI has a soul supervening over it. And so um, so I would assume God could attach a soul to AI if he chose, but I have no evidence that he has made that choice in the real world. And it's similarly, you know, could God make a, an a, a soul supervene over a stone? Well, I don't see why he can't, but I don't have any evidence that he has. So just like I don't think we should treat stones as having souls, I don't think we should treat computers running AI as having souls. If we later get evidence that God has done this, that would be that could change the situation, but we're not in that position right now. By the way, um, the first time that I encountered um, the uh, the idea of a of an artificial human or robot acquiring or android acquiring a soul was well, actually, that may not be the case because there was that character in the original Battlestar Galactica that was a robot that claimed to have a soul in a little compartment um, in its body. But one that I remember from the early 1980s is from the comic book Thriller. It went on for only um, 12 issues. It wasn't planned to be a maxi series, but that's what it ended up being for sales and creative reasons. Um, but it was about a. Um, a woman named Angie Thriller, who was deceased. She was a ghost. And she had a group of agents, there were seven of them, um, who were known as her seconds. You know, like your agent, oh yeah, that, he's my second. He's he's the one that does things for me. And she had uh she had the this group of seven agents who were all very different, and their mission was to protect the world. And so the 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 slug line for the series was she has seven seconds to save the world, which is a great slug line. Also, in the opening issue, we meet uh, one of the gentlemen who's he doesn't know it yet, but he's being recruited. And at the end, he agrees to become one of her agents. And he's told, welcome to the six seconds, number seven. Well, one of the seven seconds is a priest named Beaker Parish. And Beaker Parish is an android, but, and we never learned the details of how this happened, but in an earlier incarnation, not an incarnation, that would be too confusing, an earlier version of the seven seconds in the past, uh, Beaker was an android without a soul. And on some adventure, he ended up becoming endowed with a soul by God and dedicated his life to serving God and became a priest. And so, Beaker Parish, I've always thought was a very interesting character. Let's see, we read Computer Blue. Uh, Computer Blue's comment. John says, I've noticed you pronounce prophecy the same as prophecy. Is that a feature of the Arkansas dialect? I don't know. Maybe. Um, there are certainly, uh, I'd I have to know how you pronounce them. Um, they are spelled differently. One of them is a noun and one of them is a verb. Um, but they, I, I tend to pronounce them the same and I'm not aware that I'm doing anything unusual for the region. Um, there other people around seem to do it the same way, uh, at least so far as I've noticed. 
there are other things that are pronounced the same in different regions. Like one is uh, here in my part of the South, at least, pen, P-E-N, and pen, P-I-N, are pronounced the same. And so, um, so P-E-N, you know, what you what you write with, although that's a mechanical pencil, um, P-E-N, what you write with, and P-I-N, what you, what you stick in a piece of fabric to hold it in place, are, are spelled differently, but they're pronounced the same. I am aware that in other parts of the country, they shift that vowel a little bit, so it doesn't get pronounced the same. But that's just how dialects work. Um, everybody's got a dialect or an accent. They're, an accent is just a pronunciation scheme. And pronunciation schemes vary from one place to another. And that's okay. That's how it works. It's interesting to note their differences. But, um, but it does mean that everybody has uh, some things that they're going to say a little bit differently than people in other regions. And you'll also note, I'm sure, that my accent is in a bit of a state of flux right now because after 30 years of suppressing Southern elements in my speech, I'm now letting them reemerge now that I'm living back in the South. And that's just a normal process, too. Okay. Rebecca Kirshen says, my question is related to exorcisms. My parish priest told me to get rid of a large John Lennon poster and my gemstones. Okay. Um, I, w- I would say why. Um, you know, uh, John Lennon, a John Lennon poster is unlikely to be infested with a demon. Gemstones are unlikely to be infested with a demon unless this priest has some kind of evidence that, um, that an infestation is occurring here. I would say he's overreacting. Um, Just this thing is not Christian, like um, John Lennon. I mean, actually, he was Christian, but he may not have considered he may not have considered himself Christian by the time of his death. But, um, you know, that doesn't mean he's demonically possessed. And even if he was, that doesn't mean every photograph of him is demonically infested. Uh, That seems to me like a dramatic overreaction. Um, now, if you were tempted to do something contrary to the faith by your John Lennon poster, well, then you could want to get rid of it for that reason, but that has nothing to do with exorcism. Similarly, if you just like having gemstones, uh, so what? Um, if he wants to claim they have some negative spiritual influence on you that might involve a demonic possession and thus warrant an exorcism, or if he thinks they're demonically infested so that they need to be exercised themselves, I'd want to see his evidence. And without evidence, I'd say, don't pay it any mind. Sounds like this guy's just paranoid and possibly improperly educated on this subject. Sarah Schnaff says, before the gospel is being proclaimed on Christmas slash Easter slash other feasts, what is the reasoning for a procession around the altar to the ambo with the holding torches and incense. Okay, uh, to the short answer is to to uh, underscore the solemnity of the situation. When you go to extra effort to do something, um, it invests it with extra meaning 
in the uh, in the minds of the witnesses. It, you're you're underscoring how important it is. So if you normally, for example, don't use incense before you read the gospel, but on Christmas and Easter you do use incense when you read the gospel. It underscores that the gospel reading involving Jesus's birth and resurrection are extra important. Now, of course, every gospel reading is important. That's why we stand for them. Um, But the more you ramp it up, the more effort you go to to do something, the more you're showing this is important. And so that's the basic reason. It's to underscore the importance of this to us as not only the congregation, but to the ministers as well, and also to God. We're underscoring, we understand the importance of this by going to extra effort we don't have to go to in order to, um, in order to do this. Let's see. Okay. Carbonated dipping jam says, how tiresome does it get having to rebuke the Christmas is pagan accusations every year? Well, if I rebuked it every year, it would get really darn tiresome. So what I've done instead is do videos uh, on the subject and articles and they're out there now. And so I don't feel the need to readdress it every single time. Uh, Same thing happened with Lent a few years ago or a number of years ago. I was having to answer canonical questions every year about Lent. So I finally decided to create an online resource. I started blogging about them. And over a few years, I developed quite a bunch of Lenten resources. And since people would want to fight about Lent every year and what you can and can't do and how many days are there and all that stuff, I put uh, links to them all. In a, in, a, in a single blog post on my website called Annual Lent Fight. And for a few years, I would update it with new material because I hadn't covered everything yet. But at this point, I think I basically got all the different arguments about Lent covered. So I kind of have for Christmas and in and, and Lent, I have, I have resources already there. So, so now, so I've done it for you. So I don't have to. Uh, Rebecca Kirshen says, can inanimate objects contain demons? Well, it depends on what you mean by contain. Actually, the common theological opinion is that spirits don't fill space. Um, so they don't really have spatial locations. Instead, when we say a spirit is in a place like my spirit is in my body, according to the standard Thomistic account, it's, it's not really in my body, but it's manifesting through my body. And so can uh, spirits manifest through physical objects? Yes, our spirits are. We're manifesting through our bodies. Um, And consequently, um, they can manifest through physical forms. And they can, in that sense, be in inanimate objects even. And when that happens, it's known as an infestation. When a spirit, uh, like a demon, inhabits a person and takes control of the person, it's called a possession. But when the spirit is is inside and taking control of or manifesting through an inanimate object or location, it's called an infestation. And exorcisms can be performed for infested things. Okay, I've already covered the uh, Benaruda's question about the Holy House of Loretto. Patar998 says, how do I discern whether to get hormone replacement for testosterone when I know if I do, it'll increase temptation for sexual sin? 
I had endocrine cancer and my hormones dropped off the charts. Okay. I would say that um, testosterone is something we need. Um, I mean, even women have testosterone. They don't have as much as men, but it's something that we need. And consequently, um, taking a replacement therapy is not sinful. It's, it's something we need. Now, it's true that in sufficient quantity, uh, hormone can in the hormone testosterone in males can stimulate sexual desire. And if you have an outlet for that, that's legitimate, like you're married. Well, great. Okay, fine. No problem. What if you have, don't have an outlet? Well, you could always get married, but failing that, um, you can master the temptation you know, um, or if it's too much, if there's no real way to master it, uh, there are also things you can also do. And I don't have all the details of them, but I know there are things that they can do to like moderate sexual temptation while also giving you testosterone. Um, like I, I forget if it's, what is it? Is it DHEA or is it progesterone? I think it's progesterone. Um, there are other things that they can give you that if you're if you're taking testosterone, they can give you something else to kind of pull down, you know, undue sexual temptation. So that's another option. But fundamentally, um, if you if you we need testosterone to function, and I'd say I don't have a problem with the um, with testosterone replacement therapy, but you if you don't have a legitimate sexual outlet then you will want to either do something to counterbalance it so that the sexual temptation doesn't become too much for you or uh, adjust the dose so that you're getting enough testosterone to provide benefits, but not so much testosterone that you end up with uncontrollable sexual temptations. By the way, I'm very glad you, you got better from the endocrine cancer. Praise God. And uh, here's praying retroactively for you in that situation and for everybody in similar situations. Uh, Oh, let's see. Uh, Sarah Champ has a question continued. Doesn't it make it harder to see where the priest slash deacon is walking with God when the gospel is elevated? Oh, okay. Yes, it does. And I have, this is just a little liturgical pet peeve of mine. I, I, if you look in the church's actual liturgical documents, it says like the, the deacon or the priest carries the gospel, elevating it slightly. Okay. Elevating it slightly to my mind means raising it a little bit, but you can still see over it. It does not mean sticking it up way over your head or blocking your vision with it. Um, so yeah, it, depending on how elevated the deacon or priest makes it, it can block their vision. Um, and the, 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 the church's liturgical regulations don't say to do that. So, uh, I think that's excessive, but, um, but I don't want to major in the minors. So I, and I know people who are doing that are just doing, they were doing it the way they were taught. So I don't make a big deal out of it. It's not like it's some world crushing liturgical abuse or something. Let's see. John Baker says, question, I'm curious as to your daily routine. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. Uh, Such a prolific writer, thinker, 
and broadcaster. How does your day tend to unfold? What do you do first? What is your writing process like? Huh. Well, um, it's a little hard to describe. It's rather variable. What I do from one day to another changes considerably. So some days I know I've got broadcasting or some days I have writing to do or some days I'm doing a whole bunch of different little things. Um, In terms of some days I have to devote to study and research. Usually it's a mix of all of those on any given day. I, it feels a little bit like that line from Weird Al Yankovic's, this is your horoscope for today. Um, The scars predict that tomorrow you'll wake up, do a bunch of stuff and then go back to sleep. That's kind of what my day is like. I wake up, I do a bunch of stuff and then I go back to sleep. Um, Which particular things are depends on the day. And I don't know how, and there's no general tendency for how my day unfolds, except in the morning when I wake up, I tend to spend, I tend to spend a few minutes hydrating. You know, I, I typically non-caffeinated Zevia. Um, and then I have select amounts of caffeine later in the day. Um, but you know, I get up, I, you know, comb my hair, put on my clothes, have some have some non-carbonated beverages to re to rehydrate. Um, I usually check, I check my email and a few select websites, um, you know, email, social media, things like that early in the morning to look for messages um, that I might need to respond to. Um, and then I start in on whatever project um, I'm working on at the moment in terms of my, um, but that's what I do first. Uh, what is my writing process like? I'm not sure how to describe it. It depends on what I'm writing. If I'm writing something that I don't have to research, then I can just jump into the writing and go. And at that rate, if I, if I don't have to stop and research, I can write a thousand words an hour. Um, if it's something that I have to research a little bit, like just to check things or look up verse numbers, I'll do that on the fly as I'm writing. Um, if it's something I need to know more about, then I have to do substantial research up front. And so I'll I'll begin reading books about it. Uh, since I'm dyslexic, I don't enjoy reading off a page. Um, what I try to do with everything I at all possibly can is have an electronic version of the text because it's easier to read on screen for me than to read off a page because I can control the light on the screen. And also because um, if it's on a screen, if it's an electronic version, I can usually have text to speech, read it to me as I'm reading it. And that makes it much easier. In fact, if these days, if I can't get an electronic version of a resource, I will usually skip it and only turn to it if it's a really important resource that I cannot get electronically. Um, but I, these days I tend to read things at a faster clip than normal. Um, I often have text-to-speech on 1.4 speed or 1.5 speed, and I, I highlight important things I may want to come back to. I usually highlight way too many, but I highlight stuff. And then... 
I incorporate, you know, the information into my memory and I think about the structure of how I how I want to write uh, a given piece, whether it's an article or a book or something in between or a script. And I typically figure out I, I often the hardest part is starting because I need to figure out an angle into the subject. How do I begin this? And then once I've got my entry point, the rest of it unfolds naturally um, because I'm essentially organizing information in a topical way. It's not like writing fiction. Um, It's, you know, there's a natural relationship between different ideas and that makes topical organization um, rather than narrative organization, much easier. And so I often just figure out the organization as I go. Um, once I'm done writing, I have my, I do typically one polishing pass and I, um, I, I have text to speech do that. So I'll select the text I've written. I'll have text to speech, read it for me. It will pop up infelicities and typos because I'll hear them. It's much, it's so much better than trying to read what you've written because you know what it's supposed to say. And if you are just reading, your brain will fill in what it's supposed to say, whether that's what you're seeing with your eyes or not. So it's vastly better to use text to speech for proofreading because um, it, if, if, because the text-to-speech engine is going to tell you what it does say, not what you expect it to say, and you'll catch way more errors. Um, so I do that. I, I do typically one polishing pass, save the file, send it to the editor, and that's it. Um, the process is similar with Mysterious World. If it's a mystery that I'm currently researching, I do my research up front. I take notes on it. Um, then I already have a, a pre-planned sequence, at least for the general outlines of an episode. You know, I start with the background segment, then we have theories, then we have the reason perspective and the faith pers- perspective, which can I can switch either way with those. And we've got the bottom line segment. And so that at least gives me a general um a general look or a general framework for formatting the data in a mysterious world script. Um, I have to think about how to tell the story, particularly in the background section. I have to think about what I want to include and what I want to leave out. Like in the beast of Gevadon, uh, Gevadon, I, I leave out a bunch of detail about what the beast did because I don't want to gross people out. Um, so I have a lot of decisions to make like that. I also need to, you know, there are, I, I think consciously about the storytelling aspect of Mysterious World episodes because I want it to be as interesting and engaging as possible. Um, but uh, but I once I get going, unless, unless I hit a wall, I write really quickly um, every week. For Mysterious World, I write a script, and these days, the scripts, you know, tend to be 40 to 60 pages long around. 40 to 50 is most common. And although right now I'm using Christmas to write some, and I'm trying to get a bunch in the tank for next year. So I'm writing ones that are more like 25 to 35 pages long. 
Um, but, uh, but that's a general sketch of how the process works. And this is something that I just, I'm beginning in grad school. I, something clicked in my brain and I just became fast as a writer. I'd been, I did so much writing in my undergrad days that by the time I hit grad school, I just was really quick. And I'm very glad I am because it would be a lot harder otherwise. Let's see. MDG says, what Christmas film you would recommend for a Catholic family or what is your favorite Christmas film? Well, none of the Christmas films that I watch tend to be religious in nature. Um, I mean, I know there are dramatizations, but um, I, I tend not to watch them. Um, and so if you're looking for a historical, historically accurate Christmas film, you know, it, it wouldn't, um, it, it, it probably, I would probably nitpick it to death because of historical inaccuracies in it. Um, so that's not so much my thing. Uh, Christmas films that I've enjoyed include uh, the Mystery Science Theater 3000 version of Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Um, other Christmas films. Well, Die Hard is often considered a Christmas film, and I enjoyed that. Haven't seen it that many times, but I enjoyed that. A Christmas Story um, about the little boy who wants the Red Ryder BB gun. That was a lot of fun. Um I remember Elf being fun, but I've only seen that once, I think. Um, I'll tell you one that I'm not usually a fan of, and that is A Christmas Carol. Um, the reason for that is A Christmas Carol purports to give us the real meaning of Christmas, and it's and it doesn't give us a message about Jesus. It gives us a message about love of our fellow man. Okay, so that's love of neighbor. That's the second great commandment. But the second great commandment is not what Christmas is about. And so I recognize there's good stuff, morally speaking, and there's creative and interesting stuff in Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, you know, with the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, the ghost of Christmas future. That's all interesting. But... What I don't like about it, 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 it is, is that it, it doesn't go for Jesus. And yet it's trying to claim to give us the real meaning of Christmas. Um, at least it's presented that way. Um, it's not like Santa Claus Conquers the Martians or Die Hard or A Christmas Story, none of which are about the true meaning of Christmas. But A Christmas Carol gets billed that way. And what it gives us, ain't. It's also opened the door to a kind of de-Christianization of Christmas, where it becomes about these other things, um, like togetherness and family and things like that. And all those are good things. They're just not what Christmas is about. And so I kind of have a dislike of it um, because of that role it played in our culture. Um Having said that, there is one version of A Christmas Carol that I like. It is the Doctor Who Christmas special, A Christmas Carol, where they use time travel 
to produce the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, and the ghost of Christmas future. And it is brilliantly creative how they do that. Um, It's during the 11th Doctor's time. And instead of Ebenezer Scrooge, we have a rich tyrant man named Kazdan Sardik, um, who is a, a he's like Ebenezer Scrooge. He's a miser. Um, he is uh, he is cruel. Uh, he is willing to let people die because he can't be bothered to do a few things that he could easily do. Um, and so he's incredibly selfish. And the doctor encounters him and wants to save the people that Kazdan is willing is willing to let die. And so using time travel technology, Kazdan Sardik meets the ghosts of Christmas past, Christmas present, and Christmas future and ends up redeemed. And it's a it's a it's a wonderful fun story. So that version of a Christmas Carol I like. Elvis says, is the Christmas tree a Protestant or Catholic tradition? Well, it's both. Um, Both Protestants and Catholics have it. Um, Allegedly, it began in Germany, um, but uh, about 500 or so years ago, but Germany is both Catholic and Protestant, and I don't know that that we have good evidence for which community, if either, um, launched the tradition, but regardless of who launched it, it's, uh, it's, it's spread beyond that. And it's a legitimate custom in the Catholic community. The Vatican has a Christmas tree. It's a legitimate custom in the Protestant community. It's a legitimate custom in the Jewish community where they call them Hanukkah bushes. So it's, uh, it's all over the place. Old Possum 53 says, how do you respond to those who claim Advent and Christmas Day are simply appropriations of Roman Saturnalia by pointing out to them when Saturnalia really was celebrated. It was really celebrated on uh, originally on December 17th, and then it spread to December 23rd, so that period between the 17th and the 23rd. And then Saturnalia was over, and that's before... Um, that's before... Uh, well, it includes Advent is included in that, but it's before Christmas. It's over before Christmas Day. Advent also postdated, so that deals with the Christmas Day part. To deal with the Advent part, I would point out that we don't do in Advent what the Romans did in Saturnalia. Also, so for example, Saturnalia was a festival of the god Saturn. And it was kind of like April Fool's Day. People would do deliberately ridiculous, humorous stuff. So, for example, masters would act like servants and servants would act like masters. Um, They would uh, there was a, a lord of misrule kind of figure, the king of Saturnalia, who would direct you know, the festivities, um, people would shout, EO, Saturnalia. They would do a bunch of this stuff. They would, they would, uh, they would have a big party um, for the days of Saturnalia. And you know what we don't do in Advent? Yeah, we don't really have a big April Fool's-like party. So uh, we tend to reflect on things like the end of the world and uh, the coming kingship of Christ and things like that. So we're just not doing the same stuff. So it's not the same celebration. And it's not the same days. 
you know, Advent's a lot longer. Advent's four weeks long, whereas Saturnalia is, is basically a week. Um, and Advent didn't wasn't practiced when Saturnalia was practiced. Saturnalia went extinct before Advent arose. So the idea that uh, it's it that Advent and Christmas Day are based on Saturnalia is just it's historically false. Serious scholars of of Roman history and early Christianity simply do not take this seriously. Let's see. Apatheticat says, my mother-in-law passed away three years ago and was cremated. I'm sorry to hear that. My wife and I are Catholic, but she was not religious. She wanted her ashes scattered. B, we, I assume that's but in this context, but we have done nothing with them. Is that okay? Well, um, so um, there's actually just come out a new document from the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith um, that deals with cremation and the disposition of of cremated remains. But it only applies to Catholics. It doesn't apply to non-Catholics. And you say your mother-in-law was a non-Catholic. I would say that uh, you could deposit. So what you want to do is some kind of make some kind of long-term arrangement for when you and and your wife are no longer around. Now you have basically two choices. You could comply with the wishes of your mother-in-law. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, She, she wanted her ashes to be scattered. That's not the, that's not the traditional Catholic way of, of dealing with this, but that's our custom. Um, it's not like there's any one right way to bury people. There have been different ways to dispose of, of human remains in respectful fashion. And so if, if your mom wanted her ashes scattered, um, my inclination would be to comply with her wishes. It's, I mean, there's, there's nothing prohibiting you from doing that. And it, it's a way of honoring the dead to honor how they wanted their remains disposed of. Um, on the other hand, uh, if you choose not to honor her wishes, then you need to do something else with them because you and your wife are not going to be around forever. And so you could seek to have them interred in a grave or a mausoleum, or there is um, in the new document, and again, the new document only is it only applies to Catholics. It doesn't apply to non-Catholics like your mother-in-law, but it has provisions. I don't know that you would find a place like this for merging at least some of a person's ashes into a common collection of ashes, provided the person's individual names are remembered. Um, but the fundamental decision you have to make is do you want to do you want to honor your mother-in-law's requests or not i don't see any problem with honoring them and so i would tend to dispose of her ashes the way she wanted them disposed of it, come the come resurrection day god can find all those ashes or use any matter he wants to give her her body back she will be resurrected no matter what happens with her ashes so even though it's not a traditional Catholic custom to scatter ashes. I don't think there's anything wrong with it in principle. Lev uh, Podgornik says, why so many people in church downplay effective sin so much? 
there is almost no preaching on repentance and conversion. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I think there needs to be more of that. Now, it depends on which community you're 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 going to, um, but I think there are communities where. For one reason or another, and this includes many Catholic parishes, it also includes many mainstream Protestant parishes, um, where there's where there's very little preaching about sin and repentance. The best you often get is some veiled language about living in love or living as we should, and and yeah, okay, that fine, but uh, there's an aversion to using terms like sin and repent in our culture at present. And that's what's driving that. Um, so I think that there need to, I think there needs to be more emphasis on this than there is. Now, it's not like people going to church are unaware of these concepts. Um, you know, in fact, the church is kind of famous for its at least historical discussions of sin and repentance and Wow, there's that whole sacrament of confession thing in the Catholic context. So there's a lively awareness of sin and repentance, despite the fact you don't often hear about it preached in a uh, in a homily in many churches. But I think there is still a lively awareness of the reality. But I think it would be better if we did have some more discussion of it. But I think there are a lot of people who are hesitant to use those terms in part because they're afraid that they will be mocked and dismissed if they use them. So they try to present roughly this, you know, the same concepts, but in lighter, softer language. Let's see. So we're now at three o'clock and we've been going for three hours, but I think I got another hour in me. So, uh, so I'll hang out for that. I do want to check i've had some uh check some messages come in here real quick um let me just text back to one of these because it's time sensitive okay so let's see what else we got by the way for those who are here i see there are 237 of us at the moment and I see we have 285 likes um hope y'all are enjoying it um and uh, and thank you very much for being here with me. And just once again, I want to uh, reiterate Merry Christmas to everybody. And um, also, I want to remind people that this uh, broadcast is being sponsored by uh, Ed and Sonia of Deliver Contacts. Uh, they didn't have to do that. I was going to um, I was going to do the live stream anyway, whether I had a sponsor or not. But last year they volunteered to sponsor the, the, the broadcast just out of the generosity of their hearts. They did the same thing this year. So uh, they're clearly very generous. Um, they're spending money to help the StarQuest network, even though they didn't have to. And they wanted to be part of this Christmas live stream. And so uh, thank you so much, Ed and Sonia, for sponsoring Alone Together for Christmas. And I hope that it does bring a lot of people together for Christmas and afterwards via the replay, which will be on my YouTube channel. You know, whether someone was able to make it live or not, this is for you. Whether you have someone to be with for Christmas or not, this is for you. So let's see. Um, Dennis Conrad says, if labor pains are a punishment for, here, here it comes. This one comes up a lot. Are a punishment for original sin, did Mary have labor pains? What about the woman in Revelation 12, 2? Thank you, sir. 
Okay, so um, the woman in Revelation 12 uh, clearly has um, has labor pains. She cries out in labor. That's real clear. Um, so before we get to Mary, what does this woman symbolize? Well, um, it's it's a woman in heaven who gives birth to the Messiah, and she's got a crown of 12 stars. She's closed with the sun and has her moon at the feet. That sun, moon, 12 stars imagery is from Genesis. That is from Joseph's, one of Joseph's dreams about his family. The sun represents his father, Jacob, who is Israel himself. Um, Israel is just another name for Jacob. And the moon represents his mom and the 12 stars represent him and his brothers. So that image, that sun, moon, 12 stars imagery is a symbol of the Israelites as a people. And so this and 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 from the Israelite people does come the Messiah. So part of what's going on here is this represents Israel. It can also represent the church, the new Israel. It can also represent Mary, the second Eve. And since we have a conflict here between the woman her seed and the serpent in the form of the dragon. That's all in Revelation 12. It's also in Genesis 3.15, where it applies to the first Eve. So I think, and Pope Benedict XVI agreed with me on this, this woman should not be read one way exclusively. The woman represents several things. Uh, In my view, she represents the first Eve, the second Eve, the, um, the, the first Israel, and the, and the church. And so given that, uh, is there anything that happens with those figures that corresponds to distress or pain as the Messiah comes into the world? And the answer is yes, Um, certainly with Israel and with the church, there was pain as the Messiah came into the world. In the case of Israel, there was the persecution that uh, Israel suffered um, from the Romans, for example. In the case of the church, there was persecution that the church suffered, not only from the Romans, but from Israel. And so you could look at the birth pains the woman in Revelation 12 experiences and say, okay, that's fulfilled in the suffering. That um, that Israel and the church both experienced as the Messiah came into the world. What about Eve? What about Eve and Mary? Well, Eve was already dead by this point, so she didn't suffer. What about Mary? Well, here's where the first part of Dennis's question comes in. If labor pains are a punishment for original sin, well, they are per Genesis three sixteen. What about Mary? Well, they are a punishment for original sin, but that doesn't mean all of them are. If you look at Genesis 3.16, God says to the woman, Eve, I will multiply your pains in childbearing. Just like he's going to make work hard for Adam, you know, by the sweat of your brow, you shall eat bread. So he's going to make the punishment for their sin is um, they're both going to have a harder time in life. Eve is going to have a harder time bearing children. Adam is going to have a harder time working. And um, and so notice it says, I'm going to multiply your pains that he doesn't say I'm going to create pains that never would have been there before. 
says, I'm going to multiply them. And that could suggest that there already would have been labor pains, even if our first parents remained unfallen. And so it the um, the presence of labor pains is not a an indicator, an, an exclusive indicator of a state of sin um, or original sin. One could be unfallen, at least based on the text of Genesis 6. One could be an unfallen woman and still have labor pains. They just wouldn't be as intense as they are in a fallen state. So, uh, so consequently, even though the church teaches that Mary was a virgin throughout her uh, entire life, it doesn't teach, this is not a matter of teaching, that Mary didn't have contractions or that she didn't have pain when the contractions happened or things like that. Um, we do have extraordinarily early records. I mean, like from the first century or the, at least the end of the first century of Mary having had a, even before that um, from the AD sixties, we have a record outside the new Testament of, uh, of Jesus having miraculously been born. But um, it's, it's also possible that, uh, you know, that's not in divinely inspired. And since it's outside the new Testament, and consequently, it could be that Mary had labor pains and and that um, that that happened. Maybe they weren't as strong as they would have been otherwise. But the church does not what the church teaches is her perpetual virginity, not her perpetual absence of contractions or labor pains. So um, so I would say I can go either way on did Mary have labor pains or not. It depends on how what kind of birth Jesus had and how miraculous it was uh spring summer winter or fall says did you know that hitler got into parapsychology actually he was very skeptical of parapsychology um he was he I'm, I, he read about a bunch of different subjects but he actually was uh it, it, he was into a bunch of weird things including this ice world theory that you know like the the fundamental element is ice and the moon is made out of ice and and if it, it's really weird if you want to hear more about it uh check out i'll get you the episode number i did an episode of mysterious world on the subject um it's episode 31 so back from the early days on hitler's religion and i talked about his religion and his worldview uh let's see By the way, if you've recently joined us, it helps me if you want to ask a question, if you put a Q and a colon in front of the question, that's a visual signal. This is a question for me, also as opposed to, you know, a comment for someone else. Also, if you do at Jimmy Aiken, you can you can it'll put up a or thing I see is an orange banner telling me that something's a question for me. So one of those two would be a big help to me. So scrolling down, I'm not seeing anything that I haven't answered yet that's flagged with that. Here's one. Uh, Daniel, oops, it blinked at me. Okay, let's scroll up again to see where that was, because it just jumped on me. Okay, getting back up. I'm not seeing 
material I've seen before. Oh, very nice. I uh, I see Ann Walker says, thank you, Ed and Sonia from Deliver Contacts. Uh, what a lovely gift for Christmas. Yes, I agree. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm going to just, um, it apparently put quite a bit in the feed here. So I'm just going to go with where I see some questions that I know I haven't answered. Um, Randy Snorton says, uh, "What what's an example of what you eat in a day when intermittent fasting dinner dinner is what I eat in a day when I'm intermittent fasting um, and what that dinner contains varies. I don't want to eat the same dinner every day. It's my one meal. I want to make it count. Um, so uh, typically um, I mean, it, it can, it can really vary. Um but it's often one primary thing, uh, like um, I bought a a pre-made lasagna that you keep in the refrigerator and it'll stay good up, you know, up to a month or something in the refrigerator. So I, it's a big pan. And so I basically cut it into three pieces and I'll eat one piece of it for dinner and that'll be the main thing I eat. Um, you know, I may have a few little extra things. But it's often very simple. It's something I reheat or something I cook myself. Um, but it, it's 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 variable. Uh, or I'll order out, you know, and I'll have, you know, Chinese food or Indian food or whatever food. Um, but the but what I eat in a given day is dinner, except on Sundays and holy days. Um, I don't hold myself to the fasting requirement. And so I may eat twice a day rather than once a day. Um, one thing I would do for a while is I would order on Saturday night, I'd order a pizza and have a big enough pizza that I'd have some left over for the daytime on Sunday. So I could have pizza during the day on Sunday since I'm not fasting on Sunday. And then I'd order something else for dinner on Sunday night. Um, I often find that the portions that are served when I order out are too large. And so what I frequently will do is split them over two different days. So like, um, if I order, let's say beef fried rice from a Chinese place or mugu gai pan from a Chinese place, they'll send enough of it that I will have. And I might, you know, also I'll, it, it'll be the one main thing, but they also may like have egg roll or something like that. But I'll um, I'll split it in half and say, okay, I'm going to eat this half of it tonight, and I'll eat the other half of it tomorrow night. Let's see. Uh, John says, "Do you have thoughts on Teilhard de Chardin?" Also, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas to to you too, uh, John. Um, so Pierre Teilhard de Chardin was a thinker in the mid 20th century who proposed uh, various ideas about evolution and theology. He was a priest and his work was criticized without naming him by uh, Pope Pius XII in the 1950 encyclical Humanae Generis. Um, you know, uh, Teilhard de Chardin, that's like that, believe it or not, that whole thing is his last name. His first name is Pierre, um, but uh, or Peter in French. 
Um, but uh, he's undergone, he's never been totally condemned. You know, his thought has different thinkers have taken different attitudes toward it. And the attitude that that I would endorse was is essentially the one I perceive Pope Benedict XVI as having taken of being willing to engage with his thought without buying it hook, line and sinker, but without rejecting it entirely either. Um, and kind of taking a discerning, you know, let's see what sounds good here, but also be critical and see what sounds bad and neither be entirely embracing of it or entirely dismissive of it because, you know, science is progressive. It, it, it's, it proposes, um, you know, theories for consideration over time that, uh, some of which turn out to be wrong. And, but that doesn't mean you dismiss all of the scientific work of an individual just because he proposed some ideas that were wrong, you know, um, you know, for example, Galileo, he his his model of the solar system contained notable improvements, as did uh, Copernicus's model. Um, and it also had stuff that was just dead wrong in it. Um, they or at least dead, un, unverifiable, unfalsifiable. Um, one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is that uh, in the heliocentric or sun centered model of the solar system, it wasn't just the solar system they were talking about. It was the entire universe. And so they thought the entire universe is centered on on the sun, or at least very close to the sun. And and that ain't true so far as we can tell. We have no way of establishing where the center of the universe is because we can't see the edge of the universe. They thought they could. Back in 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 their day, um, they thought that the fixed stars, the ones that don't wander, but just rotate around, maintaining their fixed positions. In other words, the stars that form the constellations, um, they thought those were on a shell that was just outside the orbit of Saturn. And they thought that this bubble um, just a little bit larger than the orbit of Saturn, that's the universe. And they thought, okay, yeah, we can see the edge of the physical universe. It's the shell on which the fixed stars reside. And um, and it turns out that's not true. So the stars are not all on a shell that we can discern. They're at various different distances from us. And when you look for an ultimate edge, we can't find one. So we have no basis scientifically for saying that the earth is the center of the universe or the sun is the center of the universe or alpha centauri is the center of the universe or the andromeda galaxy is the center of the universe as far as we know the universe doesn't have a center if it does we have no idea where it is there's no way to establish that empirically and so even though uh they were copernicus and galileo were correct that <clears throat> That the, and they didn't know why they didn't have an explanation for this. It, that, they didn't get that until Isaac Newton in the 1600s. Um, but you know they had an. They looked like the that predominantly the planets, including the Earth, orbit the Sun. Well, that's largely true if you take your frame of reference as the solar system as a gravitationally bound system. Then 
they they do orbit what's known as the gravitational center or Barry center of the universe. It, it's it, it means the heavy center. Um, sorry, not universe, solar system. Um, it, it's the the point at which all of the masses in the solar system balance. Basically, that's the heavy center or Barry center of the gravitationally bound system of the solar system, and it's near the sun. It is sometimes in the sun. It's also sometimes out of the sun. And so, but what we're really all of us orbiting, including the sun, we're all orbiting the Barry Center. And, um, and that effectively looks like we're orbiting the sun much of the time. Um, and so there's that element of truth in Galileo and Copernicus, but we're not technically orbiting the sun. We're technically orbiting the Barry Center. And our Barry Center is not the center of the universe so far as we know. So there were elements of truth, but also elements of misunderstanding in the work of these scientists. And we can discard the elements of misunderstanding without discarding everything they said. And we can recognize elements of truth that have proved to be true over time, even if if we have a deeper understanding of them now. Well, the same thing could be true. I mean, uh, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin was, you know, similar. He was a priest and he was a scientist. Some of his work may stand up on further reflection, but I I don't critically accept it or un, I don't uncritically accept it or uncritically reject it. Frankly, I haven't studied it enough to have much of an op- opinion anyway. What I know about it, I'm kind of like, yeah, this doesn't sound plausible to me, but but I haven't studied it in detail and so I I I remain open to studying it and forming further opinions in the future. Uh, Let's see. Shane Haynes says circumcision in the Old Testament saved men, but how does that relate to the salvation of females at the time? Okay, so here's the deal. According to St. Paul, circumcision didn't save anybody. Circumcision was a sign of membership in God's covenant, but that didn't mean you were saved. Um, you uh, you could uh, be uncircumcised and be in God's good graces, and we see examples of that in the um, in the Old Testament, like when Naaman the leper comes to Elisha and um, and gets cured of leprosy. And he says, let me take back, I'm, I'm only going to worship Yahweh from now on. Let me take back a couple of loads of earth from Israelites so that I can build an altar to Yahweh and worship him. But I will have obligations to my king. When he worships his God, my head is not allowed to be higher than his. So I'll need to bow my head when he worships his God, but I'm not worshiping his God. I'm just bowing my head because I have to. Is that okay with with Yahweh? And Elisha says, sure. So Naaman is, um, is, is right with God, even though he's not circumcised, he's not an Israelite at all. And there were Israelites who were circumcised, who, who were horrible sinners that would go to hell. Presumably, we don't know this for a fact, but I would certainly be very um, concerned for my salvation if uh, I was Caiaphas, the Jewish high priest who conspired in the death of the Messiah. Okay, 
conspiring in the death of the Messiah, that's kind of bad. And so um, at least objectively, that would be a serious uh, cause for concern for Caiaphas' salvation. So according to St. Paul, circumcision didn't save you. This is some. This is an idea that came in from elsewhere. And um, what did save you was faith in the God of Israel and living by his law and, you know, accepting it, which doesn't mean the Mosaic law, because Paul also notes that the law of God is written on the hearts of men, even if they're not Jews, and says that on the day that God judges the secrets of men, it's he seems to he uses language that seems to envision, or at least arguably envisions, the consciences of Gentiles excusing them on that day because they lived by God's law as it was written in their hearts. And so um, so I think that uh, that the idea that circumcision saved people just seems to be under under evidenced. It seems to be evidenced that circumcision is a sign of membership in the Mosaic covenant, but that doesn't mean that you're saved through the circumcision. Um, even in the even in the pre-Christian times, as we can see from cases like Naaman the leper. Okay, did that one? Did that one? Oh, uh, Iraq Five B says, "Merry Christmas, Jimmy." I received an "It's Always Aliens" T-shirt for Christmas. That's awesome! Congratulations. Hope you like the T-shirt. Uh, Mr. Greeny says, what about the star? But I know Mr. Greeny knows the answer to that. I think the scar, the star of Bethlehem was Jupiter. And there are a whole bunch of reasons for that. Um, choose kindness says, where did you go to school for your undergraduate and graduate education? What did you study? Um, I went to the university of Arkansas here in Fayetteville and, um, my undergraduate and graduate training is in analytic philosophy. Um, I subsequently have had tutoring, um, in, uh, Greek and Latin, although my Greek teacher had to bail and I had to take over teaching the class, um, which was an interesting experience that apparently St. Robert Bellarmine also had. He apparently was assigned to teach Greek to seminarians, even though he didn't know how to speak it. So he stayed one lesson ahead of the rest of the rest of the class. And I had to do the same thing when I was take, learning Greek. Um, so I've had some tutoring in that. I also have, for the last few years, taken um, classes from like two, three years, taken uh, classes from the Rhine Education Center in parapsychology. Oh, but most of my learning is I'm an autodidact. So I just I'm constantly researching. I'm constantly teaching myself myself new stuff. Uh, let's see. Tiger Jim says, can you spill the beans on the Guadalupe Tilma? Well, I wouldn't, I I think no in general, because they've got it up under on the wall under glass and that makes it hard to spill anything on it, much less beans. Um, if you took it out, you took it down and, uh, and took off the glass, you could probably spill beans on it, but I wouldn't recommend you do that because it would, they'd have to clean it. They'd have to do restoration work. You would get arrested. You'd go to jail and people would hate you for defacing a, a religious uh, object. I suspect what Tiger Jim means though, is, or Tiger Jin, I see it actually says, is what do I think of it? Is it a genuinely miraculous object? Um, I, I 
plan on doing a future episode of Mysterious World on this, I have to distinguish now between the apparition of Our Lady of Guadalupe and the Tilma, because the apparition is a reported event. The Tilma is an object claimed to be associated with that event, which it obviously is associated with in some way because it's a depiction of Our Lady of Guadalupe. Okay, so the the event, the apparition, can be real regardless of whether the um, regardless of whether the object is of supernatural origin or not. Based on the evidence I have at my disposal, and I have looked into this uh, in some detail, not a huge amount, but um, but based on on the evidence as I understand it at the present. It looks to me like the tilma is not of supernatural origin. It looks to me like it is a painting. And we even have a good idea who the painter was. There are historical records that indicate that the painter's name was Marcos, and we believe we know which Marcos that was. A lot of the claims you have um, regarding it being miraculous, like you can see the bishop in the eyes, yeah, no, you can see something really blurry in the eyes that you can interpret as the bishop under the influence of pareidolia, which is the tendency of humans to see patterns in random data. Um, but you can't really see the bishop or Juan Diego. What you really see is something very blurry that you can imagine to be the bishop and Juan Diego. Um, and that's not solid evidence of anything miraculous. That's evidence that humans are subject to pareidolia. So I don't, so, you know, separating the apparition, which can still be very real from the object that commemorates the apparition. I think the object that commemorates the apparition is of natural origin based on my present reading of the data. Oh, let's see. Otheson says, uh, are you familiar with Thomas Nagel's work? Uh, his non-materialist naturalism feels eerily uh, Aristotelian. What would it take for the West to return to a realist Aristotelian view of reality? Well, um, so I am familiar with, with Thomas Nagel, uh, the philosopher, um, and... I even attended a lecture of his once. Um, it was back in the 1980s. Um, but, and he was basically talking about his most famous paper, which was one he released in 1974 called What Is It Like to Be a Bat? Um, and, and because bats have a fundamentally different way of perceiving the world than we do, you know, they, they fly around. So they, they think in three dimensions more than we do, whereas we tend to be confined to a two dimensional surface. Also there, they have this whole extra sense, you know, echolocation that we don't, I mean, actually technically humans can learn to do echolocation, but we don't do it naturally and as powerfully as bats do. So they have this just fundamentally different experience of the world. And he wrote this paper contemplating that. Um, and he came here to Fayetteville in the 1980s and, and gave a, a lecture to the philosophy department on it. Um, I'm less familiar with his uh, with his uh, work that Oethsen, um discusses regarding um, 
regarding uh, non-materialist naturalism. I am aware of other people who have non-materialist naturalism that are not explicitly religious themselves. Um, I don't know what it would take for the world to, for the West to return to a real, to a realist Aristotelian view of reality. Um, I don't know that that's even desirable. Um, but you know, there continue to be subjects that are debated. My, you know, between realist and non-realist viewpoints, uh, non-realism in this context refers to are universals real. A universal is a kind of conceptual property that, um, or collection of properties that Plato thought existed independently of the objects that instantiate them. Like I'm a human. So in Plato's world of ideas or world of forms, there is the universal form or ideal of a human, which I happen to be an instantiation of. Aristotle said, okay, these universal properties, they do exist, but only in the instance. There's no world of forms where they exist independently of the things that instantiate them. But Aristotle and Plato both said these universal properties are real, have a real existence, um, somehow in a way distinguishable from the things that have them. But then there are non-realist schools like nominalism that say um, that no, actually the names we give to these properties or the, the names we give to universal properties are really names that hence it's called nominalism. They're not independently or distinguishably real from the things that have them. So anomalous would say purple is the name we give to the property that my shirt's color has. But that doesn't mean that the purpleness is distinct from the shirt on Aristotle's view, that it's an independent entity from the shirt. And it also certainly does not mean there's an ideal of the purple color in some non-physical world of form somewhere. So, you know, these are three different positions um, that I think I'm least favorable towards the platonic idea, but I think that, uh, that there's a kind of blending of, um, of, of the realist and Aristotelian realist positions that I think they both have things to be said in their favor. So I'm 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 not firmly on team Aristotle here. Um and I I don't know what would have to happen. I don't it doesn't seem to me that there's any empirical way to sort out these philosophical positions. So I would suppose there would have to either be some kind of major philo- scientific discovery that could shed light on these questions in which case we'd be doing scientific metaphysics. Or there would have to be some kind of major persuasive arguments that get made by uh, Aristotelian thinkers in favor of their metaphysics in order to convert people generally to that point of view. Let's see. Oweson also says, to what extent can someone enjoy a film that has themes that are contrary to church teaching. I like Tarantino, and I know Bishop Barron even thought his worm has, I assume that's work, 
His work has intense, vulgar themes. Well, yeah, I've I've seen and, and Owison also says he's yeah, he corrects it to work and he says Bishop Barron likes him, too. Yeah. Um, so one can appreciate work that contains material that's contrary to the Catholic faith or the Christian faith in general. Um, you know, St. Paul read the Greek myths. You know, he quotes from Greek writers who were talking about Greek religious concepts. And so he knows about all that stuff. And um, I wouldn't be at all surprised if he read the Iliad and the Odyssey, you know, the two most famous works of Greek literature. Um, But in reading any such works, he would recognize the good points in them, such as the ones he quotes, and he would recognize the bad points in them. He would use critical thinking. And so that's what we need to do. When we watch a movie or read a book or watch a TV show or go to a play or or consume any form of media, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, we need to use critical thinking. We need to discern from the good from the bad. And if we discard the bad and find out that that it's not so taxing on us to discard the bad that we just want to quit and there are enough good redeeming elements to continue to watch the medium um, or consume the medium, I should say, because it could be reading, um, then we can go ahead and do that. So basically, if you're if you find value in a in a work of um, of literature, regardless of its form, if you find value in it that is sufficient to justify your time once you take away the process of eliminating and ignoring the bad stuff, then you can keep going with it. And that applies to a Tarantino film as much as anything else. I've seen a number of Tarantino films and uh, I recognize they're well-made. They, they do often include violent stuff um, and they have unhistorical fantasy endings frequently, like in uh, once upon a time in Hollywood, the Manson Sharon Tate lives. Yay. And the Manson family gets the snot kicked out of it. Similarly, at the end of Inglorious Bastards, the whole Nazi leadership, including Adolf Hitler, dies. Um, and so, yay. Um, these are alternate histories. These are fantasy endings. But, you know, it's kind of it's it, it, it can be kind of nice to watch the Manson family get the snot kicked out of it, knowing what they did to real human beings. Um, And the same thing for Hitler. Um, So, and his evil Nazi leadership. Uh, So uh, I recognize that there are elements in these films that are certainly not family friendly and, and may not even be uh, fully compatible with the Christian faith, but, um, but they're also, they're well-made and they contain artistically redeeming elements and the proportion of good elements to bad elements is such that I don't have a problem watching uh, watching various Tarantino films that I've seen. Another one that I'll mention is The Hateful Eight. Um, the Hateful Eight, I thought, was really, really good. Um, I won't spoil it, but um, I will say that it contains one of the best treatments of race that I have seen in I don't know how long in a Hollywood film. Um, it, it displays a complexity 
and sophistication and subtlety in hand, handling the subject of race that I just do not expect in a modern uh, in a modern American film. But The Hateful Eight did it great. Um, and I, there are others that have done it great, too. Uh, and I, like I said, I don't want to spoil it. And there are the, there are elements in this that, you know, someone could look at that and say, oh, my God, that's racist. Well, OK, on the surface, it is. But Tarantino's doing something deeper here. And if you watch the whole film, you find, oh, wow, this is a much more subtle, intricate um, handling of this than I would ex- than you would expect. So I think there can be artistic elements um, and other elements that are redeeming for something, even if it contains bad elements that need to be set aside or ignored. What what that's going to be and where the balance point is for an individual is going to differ depending on individuals. You know, some individuals are going to say, oh, this has I this one thing in it is enough to ruin the whole thing for me. Okay, fine. If if that ruins it for you, then don't watch the rest of it. I totally appreciate that. De gustibus non est disputandum. There's to be no disputing about tastes. You respect another person's tastes. If that's not your thing, that's okay. Other individuals like me, I've got a fairly strong stomach and a fairly, I don't know, alert, critical thinking skill, I would say. And so I'm able to filter out more of stuff and say, okay, yeah, I don't like that. That's bad. But set it aside then and and see what else is there that might be something I could appreciate. So it just depends on who you are. And there's no right or wrong answer on that as long as you're using critical thinking. Uh, let's see. By the way, we've got 19 minutes left. And then we'll hit our four-hour mark. Ben Aruda says, do you play any musical instruments? Well, not really. Um, I have had training in musical instruments. Um, I trained in the viola and the violin, and um, I gave myself some lessons on the piano and organ. Um, I, I, but um, I haven't practiced any of them actively enough to say I really play them. I play a little bit of, of keyboards by ear. Um, I have, I taught myself enough music theory to read sheet music at one point, but, um, but I haven't used it in a, in a really long time. Um, what I have focused on more is performance in vocal form. So I, in, as part of my square dance calling and calling other forms of dance, I use my voice in performance and I have to make my voice work with the music and with the beat, but I leave doing the instruments up to other people, either live musicians or recorded musicians. Um, and then I work with the music. So I have an awareness, like I have an awareness of different beats and musical pitches and tones and things like that, but I'm working in the vocal arena. Um, one thing that I'll mention, I won't, I won't name her, but in, so there are certain, there are certain, there are different kinds of calling. And um, in some versions of calling, like in modern Western square dance, the caller is expected to call to the beat, but not to the musical phrase. Uh, A musical phrase is a collection of 
a number of beats depending on the time signature you're working in. Like a 4-4 time is written in eight-beat structures. So you have these counts of one and two and three and four, and you've got eight beats in a musical phrase. And so in modern Western square dancing, you're expected to call to the beat, but you don't have to call to the phrase. So I could say Alamand left and right and left grand, and I'm calling to the beat, but I'm not like, I don't care where the phrase ends of music. But in other forms, because the melody is composed frequently of a fixed number of musical phrases, um, you are expected to call to the phrase. And so you need to, let's say you're going to call, um, let's say you're going to call a circle left. And so you you want to wait until just before the beginning of the next musical phrase to give the command. That way, the dancers can start the action on the phrase and it creates a greater feeling of dancing with the music rather than dancing irrespective of the music. And so you want to go one, two, three, four, five, six, circle left, and then they get to start on the next beat of the musical phrase. And they feel much more like I'm dancing with the music, not just alongside the music. Um, But I find in English country dancing that a lot of callers don't, they, they're, they don't really sync with the, with the beat and the phrase. Instead, what they do is they talk in front of the phrase, but they're not like precisely matching their voice to the beat and, and so forth. They're just kind of talking. They give the command before you get to the musical phrase. So you're, you're kind of drifting along and they'll say circle left and then they keep going. Um, But they, they, they're not really using their voice in sync with the music, with the beat and the phrase. They're just getting out the command before the phrase. And what I do is I pay very close attention to timing and I find ways to, to, to coordinate what I'm saying with the music and the beat. Um, so even my commands to the dancers take on aspects of what they're hearing in the music. So it's like one, two, three, four, five, six, circle left, as opposed to one, two, three, four, five, six, circle left. Um, and, and so there's a very famous, um, so this is really my instrument. I suppose I'm saying it's my own voice and performance. Um, that's what I work on. And there's a very famous English country dance um, caller. She is world famous. She travels all over the world to call gigs. Um, And she has heard me call a number of times and very graciously has said to me, whenever I hear you call, and she's been doing this for like 50 years. She said, she's told me, whenever I hear you call, I learn new things about timing. And that was very special for me to hear from someone as esteemed as she is, who's been doing this for as many decades as she is, as world famous as she is, to to think that my timing is so good that she can learn new things from it. My timing as a caller, 
is so good that she can learn new things about how to match commands to the music that um, that was really special. And I, I very much appreciated her saying that I was very I was very humbled and honored. Mr. Rock says, I'm having problems reconciling with Nostra Etate saying God and Allah are the same. Any input? Yeah, um, they're the same, at least in principle. Uh, This has never, never been an issue before in the history of Christianity. Um, Allah is just the Arabic word for God. It is used by Arabic Christians for God. It was used by Arabic Christians for God before Muhammad showed up. Um, What happened was Muhammad showed up and talked about Allah, and he recognized this is the same God that Jews and Christians have, but he presented his own vision of this God, his understanding of God. And his understanding contains some true elements, like God is merciful, for example, but his understanding also contained false elements. Okay, fine, but that doesn't mean he's not talking about God. He's talking about the creator of the universe who appeared to Abraham, who is merciful, who sent Jesus as one of his prophets, and so forth. Um, Okay, all that's true. Now, he also had mistaken understandings in there as well, like Jesus is not the son of God, and um, and you know, there's no trinity and things like that. Well, okay, you know who else, else has that no trinity thing? Standard Jews and Jews before the time of Christ. They didn't understand the Trinity either. That's why Jesus talking to the disciples says, you believe in God, meaning the Father, believe also in me. Okay, this Trinity thing is a new thing. You don't have to believe in it to know God. The Jewish people knew God before the Trinity was revealed. So you can't hang your hat on the Trinity. Okay, what about the fact they say, yeah, I don't think Jesus is the Son of God. Does that invalidate their view of that they're talking to God when they try to talk to God? Well, no. I mean, suppose, suppose I know Bruce Wayne and I don't believe Bruce Wayne is Batman. Okay. Does that, does the fact I don't think Bruce Wayne is Batman mean I can't talk to my friend Bruce? Of course not. I can know about my friend Bruce. I can talk to my friend Bruce and have no idea about his secret life as Batman. So in the same way, I can know there's a creator who created the, there's a God who created the world and appeared to Abraham and sent prophets. I can know about him. I can talk to him and not know about every single aspect of his infinite mystery, which of course I don't know most about it because it's infinite and I'm finite. So I'm not going to know most of God's mystery, no matter what. And I can be ignorant and mistaken about some aspects of God's mystery. I could mistakenly, like many Jewish people, think Jesus is maybe a maybe a, a teacher of some kind, but he's not the son of God. Jews think that too, but that doesn't stop them from having, from worshiping God. And, you know, they're, they're mistaken or unaware of certain aspects of God's mystery that Christians are fortunate enough to have been told about, but, um, but they still know and have a relationship with God, even though they have an incomplete or imperfect understanding of God. And that's, if that's true of Jews, it's true of Muslims. And frankly, it's also true of us. We have an incomplete understanding of God because we're finite, duh. And many of us also have incorrect 
aspects of our understanding of God. That doesn't mean we don't know and don't worship God. So, um, so when Nostra Aetate, the Second Vatican Council Declaration, says that Muslims together with us worship, you know, the God of Abraham, well, that's true. If you send your prayers to Creator and God who appeared to Abraham at Universe dot reality, God will receive them because He's omniscient. And he'll know you're talking to him because you are. So, um, and this has been recognized all the way down through Christian history. This was never an issue until extremely recently. Um, the, you know, like if you go back to Thomas Aquinas or John Damascene or any of the figures in the Middle Ages, they're going to acknowledge, yeah, Muslims, they worship God too. They just don't understand him the right way. Just like Jews worship God too. They just don't understand him the right way. But what happened in the 20th century was you had Protestants who didn't speak Arabic um, saying, oh, Allah must be this different God because he's got a different name. And they started spreading the idea, which eventually spread into, and it's not all Protestants. It's only some. Uh, but there were some Protestants who who were you know, confined English speaking Protestants who are confined to working in English. They don't understand, oh, this is just the Arabic word for God that is used by Arabic speaking Christians for God. Um, and they they try to make it sound like they're two different gods. And this is drawing on some other tendencies in Protestant thought that we don't really have time to discuss right now. But that's what they did. And then this idea caught hold in the English-speaking Protestant community, and it spilled over into the English-speaking Catholic community. And Catholics who have a problem with this don't realize none of their Catholic forebears had this belief that Allah and God are two different gods. This is a modern idea that they have adopted from Protestants who, frankly, don't have a proper understanding of the subject. And if they were actually sensitive to Catholic tradition, as expressed by people like John Damascene and Thomas Aquinas and all the other thinkers down the line through Catholic history, they would recognize that it's always been understood that Muslims, like Jews, like Christians, worship the Creator who appeared to Abraham, but Muslims and Jews have incomplete or sometimes inaccurate understandings of the Creator. And so this has just never been a controversy Catholic people who frequently identify as traditionalists who claim to have problems here are unaware of the actual Catholic tradition on this and are unawaringly picking up an idea from the Protestant community and importing it without realizing it into Catholic circles. So went on a little bit there, but I hope that helps, Mr. Rock. It just jumped on me again, and we only have a few minutes left, so I'm just going to look for questions. Uh, Justin L. says, my daughter has dyslexia. What advice do you have for a parent with a dyslexic child? Any materials that work well? Well, so I don't know what um, I don't know what current dyslexia treatment for children is like. I know there's there's been a lot developed in this front. Um, I since dyslexia contains a genetic component. Um, I'm not the only person in my family who has it. And I have a person in my family who is young and dyslexic and is getting a whole bunch of, they're using a bunch of reading development, you know, um, techniques to help this person out. 
And so I, 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 I've been exposed to a few of those techniques, but they weren't what were used with me. So I would say do research into what techniques are currently available and that seem to be promising. What they did for me was they had me use a machine called a Reader Hoffman. Um, a Reader Hoffman is a kind of automatic film strip record player. So when I would sit down with the Reader Hoffman, it had a strip of film on a on a you know piece of plastic um, in kind of a plastic frame, and I'd put it down and attach it to like sprockets that would advance it forward, and I'd put a record on the record player and set the handle down on that. And then um, it would tell me a story that had pictures that it would show on a screen. This was not an electronic screen. It was a like a reflector screen. Um, and it had the text and of the story on the screen, and it would read the story to me out loud. And so what I would do is I would just use the reader Hoffman to guide me through reading the story. And I would do this over and over again, and it would have sound effects and it would have voice actors and it would have explosions and all whatever was appropriate to the story. Um, but it would, it would be engaging enough. It would get me to read the story as I'm going through it. And after doing that enough, by the time I was in fifth grade, I was reading on eighth grade level. So I, I jumped ahead just from, you know, that practice um, and that's what worked for me. And even today I incorporate elements of that. I don't have a reader Hoffman anymore, but what I do have is text to speech engines. Um, and so I will either listen to audiobooks, or I'll have my Kindle read to me, or if I'm on a web page, I'll select the text on a web page and then hit my control key. Uh, you know, my, my key combination to turn on text to speech and it will read it to me as I'm reading it visually with my eyes and the voice will help pull me through the text. And so that's, that's what I do. Um, I would, for a child, I would, um, you know, I would, I would look at the techniques that are currently used to help children because they may be better and they may have better outcomes than what I had. Um, but, uh, but, but that's the essence of what I do today. But I would also supplement what I do today with, um, you know, with audiobooks and 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 text to speech and so forth. I would I would make sure that um, one doesn't only become reliable or reliant on audiobooks and and text to speech. One does want the ability to read without those aids, and so I would look at what techniques are available now for helping dyslexic children. And let's see. Okay, I just did Justin L's. Let's look down for another question indicator. Game fan says, what happened to those resurrected after Jesus died on the cross? Did they die again? The truth is, we don't know. Um, this is an event mentioned at the end of Matthew. It is very mysterious. It says that after the resurrection, uh, some of the individuals who had uh, previously died, who were holy people, came into Jerusalem and showed them uh, had raised from their graves, came into Jerusalem and showed themselves to various people. That's the only thing we know about this. There, there is no substantial tradition later about that 
has is likely to be historically accurate that describes what happened to them. Um, so we don't know if they went to heaven with Jesus later or otherwise, or if they died again or went back to their tombs immediately and died. We we just don't know. Okay, uh, Oscar the Texan says, I know fundamentalists accuse us of idolatry when it comes to adoration. What do you make of Anglicans who practice adoration? Is that technically idolatry? Should we discourage them? Okay, so he's refer- uh, Oscar is referring to Eucharistic adoration, where we give our adoration to Jesus in the Eucharist. Um, it's going to depend on what you count idolatry as. Uh, one historic element of idolatry, at least in its pure form, is it involves um, the uh, the worship of an image as containing a god. And you could challenge, are Eucharistic elements actually an image? You know, they don't look like Jesus. Um, Setting that aside, because there are extended applications of the term idolatry, um, one could uh, say, okay, well, is Jesus, and, and what Oscar's asking about is assuming that um, that Anglican priestly orders are invalid, we would assume that they don't have a valid Eucharist. So they would be giving adoration to Jesus in the Eucharist, um, even though their Eucharist is not valid. Well, okay, maybe. Um, there actually, there can be something of a question about how commonly invalid are Anglican orders, because among other factors, there has there have been priests with valid orders who've come into the Anglican communion. Some of them may have become bishops and they may have passed on valid orders. So we have to be a little careful about are they all invalid? Also, um, even if they were, well, so what is the person what is the person doing in this situation? Um, if the person says I'm worshiping Jesus who is there in that patch of space, you know, where the Eucharist is. Jesus is there. Well, is that true? Whether their Eucharist is valid or not, Jesus is God and God is omnipresent. So you can worship Jesus anywhere. And that's not idolatry. So you can argue that in this situation, it's not going to be idolatry because they're worshiping Jesus in this space. Jesus is in this space via his omnipresence. Therefore, that's not idolatry. They're, they're, they're acknowledging something that's true. Jesus is really there. On the other hand, you could say, well, yeah, but they're thinking his body and blood are there, not just his divinity. They're thinking his body, blood, and human spirit are in that space as well. And they're not if their Eucharist is invalid. Would that be idolatry? Well, it's hard to see why it would be idolatry. It would just be a mistake because they're not claiming anything about his divinity at that point. They're saying his divinity is in that space, and it is. But if they think his body is in that space and it's not, that's not really idolatry. I mean, suppose um, suppose we're one of Christ's disciples, and we're staying in a house with him, and I and let's say I think that Jesus is on the roof at the moment. Um, and really he's not on the roof. Really. He's, he's, he's down in, he's down on the first floor of the house, petting the farm animals. Okay. Cause that's where the farm animals lived was on the first floor. Um, so I think he's in his body and 
blood and human spirit are up on the roof when really they're down on the first floor. And if I call out to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, you're so wonderful. Okay, I'm attesting to his worth. So that is worship or worship. But I'm directing it up to the roof where I think he's there. Am I committing idolatry? Because he's not really on the roof. He's down in the basement or down on the first floor. I don't think that's idolatry because I'm not worshiping an image. Um, I'm mis- just mistaken about I'm worshiping Jesus. I'm just mistaken about where he physically is. So I don't think that I, in light of all that, I would not accuse our Anglican friends who practice adoration, even if they have a, um, a, um, a, a Eucharist that's not valid, I wouldn't accuse them of idolatry. They're right. His divinity is in that space. And they would just then be mistaken about where his humanity is, but they're not worshiping a false image of, of, of God. So hope that helps you out. And with that, we're now just over four hours into the live stream. So once again, I want to say a thank you to Ed and Sonia at um, uh, Deliver Contacts for sponsoring the broadcast out of the generosity of their hearts. I want to thank everyone who was here, including everyone who asked questions or made comments that I wasn't able to get to. I'm, I will be reading your comments afterwards, um, but uh, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed hanging out. You can always uh, come back and rewatch this if you uh, weren't able to join us for the whole thing this time or weren't able to join us at all. And uh, till next time, stay safe, stay well, and Merry Christmas. God bless you all.